Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. So any questions that you may have, first hour every day, seven days a week. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to talk about the $10,000 studio. So if we were going to, if we had a little more than 1000 but a little less than 100000 what would we spend? So, so anyway, or a little less than 10,000. So, uh, so anyway, so what, what would we spend here? And so we'll talk about cameras and mics and lights and all the things that are connected to that. So stay tuned for that in the second hour. And if you've got questions about that or comments, go ahead and throw those in right now, along with the first hour questions. Of course, this show doesn't happen without the producers. Uh, that's you, um, uh, actually asking questions and driving this conversation. So make sure to ask those questions and to vote on the questions so that we would know what order you'd like us to talk about them. All right, go ahead, Bill. What do we got? Our first question this morning comes from Andre Dolly in Berlin, and he says, chances are high that we'll get a customer who's using Teams for their hybrid events. Which resources should I look for to get a Teams master? Are there any possibilities to control Teams via a stream deck, a bit similar to how Zoom OSC companion workflows work? I go, Jonas. First of all, I have to say I'm sorry for you. <laughs> um, there is a Microsoft Teams Stream Deck plugin that I've heard good experiences and I've heard bad experiences with it. Um, what's really important with Teams is you're playing on a wholly different uh, security level because um, uh, Teams gives the orgs way more access to what you can lock down on a per meeting basis and a, on a whole organization unit. So make sure that if you have speakers from that organization, you are able to do a speaker prep with them. With Teams, it's really important that their account logs into the production meeting before. We have had issues where the CEO isn't allowed to join external companies' meetings. If you can, uh, get in contact with the tenant administrator for that company to make sure that you have someone on the short dial. If you decide you want to use the NDI output out of Teams, that you can call them and say, hey, help, we need this enabled. Um, there is still a web client for Microsoft Teams. And funnily enough, that has less features, but for production, sometimes it's awesome because it has less overlays. It has less processing on the audio input and you can join it without uh, poisoning your whole system with that specific orgs Teams account, which is also really important. And then, um, there isn't really an app like Zoom ISO, Zoom OSC for it. A lot of stuff is built into the app, um, but it really depends on the organization. So please keep in mind what organization you're using. And then, yeah, um, don't think you will ever achieve anything above 1080p. Uh, I haven't seen a 1080p coming out of teams that looks good. I would much rather settle for a good 720p. Um, some things to keep in mind is they still have an automatic switch for music mode. So play some music at the start and it might show up with, hey, here is an additional music mode that we don't highlight to you till we think you're playing music. Um, test it with voices doing your tests as well. And then uh, just keep in mind it's Microsoft Teams and there might be issues. Um, one of the issues is the person scheduling the meeting. So if your client schedules the meeting, they have... Um, more rights than you and sometimes they misclick and click mute everyone with a couple playouts into teams where the client joins a call and thinks someone is unmuted mutes everyone including our feed 
which then requires you to request permission to unmute again. So things like that, keep that in mind. And then um, one issue we found with Teams is your local preview is not what you're sending. So make sure that you have a separate device with Teams that you can monitor what the Teams is getting. Because we had an issue where we saw that we we're sending the video. I saw that the microphone is being inputted in the little uh, audio meter, but nothing came out on the other end till we start stopped out our, our uh, video and audio feeds. So that's just a couple of things to keep in mind uh, when you need to work in that environment. One question that we also ask oftentimes is now, if, it's, if, if you're dealing with Microsoft directly, this won't go very far. And some companies are very dogmatic about Teams. But some of them, it's just the delivery method that they want. And that might be Teams, it might be WebEx, it might be a couple of other things. We ask them, do you need to have all the speakers in, in that platform or do you just need the event to occur in that platform? And that's an important question because what we've done in some cases is that we produce the whole event in Zoom and just, be, and just join Teams or WebEx as a as just one participant and that participant is the show and and the what's funny is that we started doing that in zoom so we would enter a webinar but we would have the meeting be well that's what we're doing here right so we have all of us are in a meeting and it's in the, the program of this meeting is going to another meeting and so in the same way we would do this whole show it, the way we do it in zoom with all the tools that zoom has and then simply publish that to Teams or to WebEx or to whatever, because sometimes they want that security because all their employees are using Teams. But what the speakers are in isn't as important. So those are things to, to kind of think about too, because the, the tools, because of Liminal, the tools that are within Zoom are dramatically better <laughs> than everybody else's. Uh, it's, not, it's not close. It's like you see them and then you can't see the next number two anywhere in the distance. So, so you just have to know that if you can get them to just let you publish to it, you're in a better place. Next question. Mark Giuliani comes up next from Washington, D.C. And Mark says, we're working with a nonprofit that wants us to restream an event to our platform tonight. Our contacts don't know the details about the stream. How do we screen scrape using a Mac Mini with DeckLink card and an ATEM with a web presenter? Go ahead, Jonas. So if you want to use the Declan card to output, I would use something like OBS um, that allows you to take a Chromium source and interact with it in OBS. You can right click on the browser source and click interact. That way you can click play, unmute, whatever the platform that you might need to screen scrape needs. And then you can output it over SDI that way. It might be better for you to try to convert the HDMI out of your uh, Mac into an SDI feed and do it that way. So you step, uh, skip over the whole OBS feed. Um, and if you have no information, I would just try to keep it simple, make it look like you are just watching the feed and then screen capture it. Um, most of the feeds do have like a full screen feature, use that, um, but don't try to do anything fancy that probably, yeah, I wouldn't try to like get the HLS URL and put that into a player or something like that. I would just screen capture it. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I guess I'm confused by the. I guess so. So they're they want to. The, the, so they just have to go to the. I, I guess this is the issue. They have to go to a stream, get the stream, and just publish it. It sounds like the company is already doing a stream to I don't know YouTube, Vimeo, whatever, and that he got the call. Hey, can you also stream that to your platform? And he right. needs to restream it. Yeah, OBS would work well. Also, um, this is a place that. Uh, 
VLAN, uh, uh, um, uh, I don't know why. VMix? No, no, not VMix. V, um, VLC? VLC. VLC. Ah, there we <laughs> go. I don't know why that just jumped out of my head. But VLC will also, you can attach it to an object. It'll go full screen and you can push it out. We've seen people use VLC for that kind of thing as well. Um, if it, if you can get a hold of the, um, sometimes you can get a hold, if they're streaming, there may be a manifest floating around in the page. Uh, so one of the things that's interesting is that your Chrome will not be able to see, can't see an HLS. So if you find the HLS, so what what sometimes we do is we can go into uh, um, go into Chrome and go into developer tools and see the source code of the page. And then we find the the manifest inside of that. It'll be M3U8 is, is hidden somewhere in the page. Uh, we grab that and we put it back into, and then we can use that as a link to, to grab onto the HLS stream directly. So that might be another way you can handle it. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Khaled Al-Jamaya in Hassa, Saudi Arabia. Hey, Alex, when will the famous Alex Screen Annotation app be available? Your daily stream of knowledge, by the way, is awesome. Thanks to the Office Hours community notes. Thanks, Khalid. Uh, the, the, um, uh, it's so close. So uh, there's a couple little uh, gestures that, that I'm working on, and I'll be testing it over the weekend. I, we're like so close to being there. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, uh, Juan Carlos has done some amazing work on it. Uh, I think that it could... Um, there's some business stuff that I got to sort out as far as like getting all the stuff linkages with app, the App Store, um, but uh, but we should have that sorted out in the next uh, week or two, and so it's we're we're probably a week or two out now. Um, I know Juan is probably going, what is he talking about? We're still a month away. So anyway, but we're we're very very close. Uh, everything works really well. The, one of the big things that we we've been really working on is making sure that you know when when we do this that this this is very smooth and and consistent and um, it's been a little bit of work to get that working and then the other thing is is that we decided that we wanted it to be um, ipad and m1 compatible so that you could just install it on both of them as a single uh, install and uh, that took a little bit more work because i'm obsessed with not having any interface <laughs> so 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 there's a lot of gestures that are hidden into it and keystrokes and so on and so forth because uh, I I, I want to be able to drive all. If you're using it on the Mac, I want to drive it all to your Stream Deck or or to anything else. So it's all key keystroke, and on the iPad, I want it to be all gestures, so that you just you just get used to how you how you interact with it. Um, but figuring out what we do with two frame, you know, two fingers and four fingers and three fingers, and doing all those things are takes a little bit of it's taken a little bit of work to figure that out, that out. So um, and Juan has done an amazing job, and so we're we're very 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 close now. So um, probably a couple of weeks. Next question. James Babbitt in San Diego says, Hi, Alex. What mic, camera, and lights do you use for your current mobile setup? For my mobile setup, I have moved to um, I've moved to just going ahead and taking this camera down. So the camera that we have here, uh, that's my uh, Sony FX30. It just turns out to be a really great camera to just take on the road and take pictures with. And um, but also, uh, but I but I've been taking it now with me because I think I got so used to how it looked, I decided I didn't really want a web camera when I was traveling. Um, then uh, I take a Mix Pre 3 with noise assist with, um, and usually I have both a DPA 4066 and a Countryman H6, and I find in different environments they work differently. Um, and then I have a couple, I, I take typically four nano, um, Nanlite 6C Pavo tubes, uh, two to color the background oftentimes, and then two to, to as key lights. Um, and then a bundle of wires and a laptop. Oh, and one other thing that I have, I can't grab it. One key piece is I have this little riser for my for my laptop that kind of goes down to nothing. It goes flat, 
and you can pull it up and it, and it forms kind of a leg that you can set the laptop on so that I can move that laptop up a little bit to get my eye line. I'm not looking down at it. Um, that turned out to be um, a key purchase uh, for for that. But all of it fits relatively easily into a um, uh, into my backpack. You know, so it's 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 not a it's it's all a pretty small com, uh, containment. Um, I just got some of the Domkey um, wraps. I had I'd had a lot of them, and they're you know they're being used for other things, so I can wrap up my lens and my camera. So that's the only last little bit. And um, I found a great little. I was using an old Electrosonic case to put try to stuff everything into it, and it wasn't enough room. And I found that if I just went a little bit bigger <laughs> to to a, a case I found on YouTube that has a couple sections, I'm able to put everything, get everything in there, and and um, and it's it's really nice and compact. Uh, it takes about uh, 15 minutes to set up, and the first one that I did took about 45. So I feel like I'm getting better. Uh, next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, comes up next. Has anyone had recent problems pointing Zoom custom live streaming to Restream.io? Restream was blocked by Zoom for us yesterday, but worked directly to YouTube. The creds are checked and the Restream tested okay. And then he's got a frowny emoji, so I guess he's still having trouble. Yeah, I've had a lot of trouble with the Zoom custom live streaming when I didn't have, or the YouTube tr streaming, when I didn't have a, if I didn't put the return feedback in, it wants to know where it's going um, so that it can it can have a f uh, feedback there. And I've had trouble with that in the past. I don't know why you would have trouble with the custom live streaming. You shouldn't have that problem because it's just a dumb RTMP uh, stream out. But definitely I would give, the, if, if you can't do it again two days in a row, I would, I would ping, uh, I'd file a ticket. Um, Zoom is pretty responsive to that, um, to make that work. The other thing that I would, I would strongly consider is this is where you know you know building something in Zoom ISO and and building something a little bit more more complex might give you a much better show, um, even if you're using something just software OBS or vMix or or um, uh, Mimo Live or you know uh, Ecamm. All of those things can can bring those can bring those in, in software if you don't want to get the hardware for it and uh, produce a much better show. Um, and, and those will all stream as well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Foonstock Jar, uh, Jor, uh, Dorji, sorry about that, Foonstock, uh, from Dharamshala, India. Greetings, I have been trying to download a .mov 38 gigabyte file since this morning on my Windows 10 laptop. He tried Edge and Firefox, too little avail. What could be the reason? Go ahead, Jeffrey. There's so many unknowns that we uh, that we don't know uh, uh, that could be the problem here. First of all, we don't know what type of laptop you have. We don't know how much storage you have. Well, we don't know what the uh, what the network connection is, uh, and that is the network connection on your laptop versus the uh, internet connection that you have. A 38 gigabyte movie is a is sometimes if you've got a very slow internet connection, it's a very tough download because it can take days. It could even take a week in some cases. And if you have any connection, uh, any interruption in the connection between the source and the uh, and the destination, then you run into that, that problem of disconnecting right there. So uh, the biggest thing is make sure that you have 38 gigs on your uh, computer ready to go. Um, make sure that you have, if, you, if you're running Wi-Fi, connect it up to your router through an Ethernet cable, you're going to have a better uh, uh, better option that way, and then be able to uh, uh, just meter out your uh, your internet to make sure that you can handle a 38 gigabyte file download. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, probably it's because the file's too big. A lot of uh, services, a lot of ISPs limit the size of a download file to prevent uh, piracy, and. Um, 
also Windows, you know, has file limit sizes. If you're as long as you're storing it onto an NTFS segment, that should be okay. But remember, FAT32 is limited to four gigabytes in size, so uh, you can't create a file more than four gigabytes. A lot of times it'll divide it up if it has to. Try and use an FTP server of some sort to get it down. That might help somewhat because it does error checking and it is designed for downloading larger files. If you're leaving it up to your ISP's tools, they may prevent it uh, something that large from coming down. And like Jeffrey says, 38 gigabytes could take a long time if it's an MOV file. If you need it in that higher resolution or whatever you're downloading needs to be that higher resolution, or if it's a five-hour long file, I'd divide it up to make it smaller files and then try and download it. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, as Jeffrey said, I mean, there's so many unknowns. You know, it's like going into the doctor and like, you know, doc, I'm not feeling well. What do you think's wrong with me? Um, the the easiest thing to do when diagnosing anything aside from reboot please tell us you rebooted and did all that stuff maybe even restart your all your networking uh, equipment but anything that you can test with another thing helps you identify what the bad thing is so if you have another computer are you getting the same results um most likely my hunch is that it is the source uh so whether that's uh simply a website um you know depending on if this is uh from a client versus some movie sharing site or something like that um and, and sometimes it's the individual file so can you find something similarly large um from that same source and try and download that obviously if you have another computer that would be great um if you have a friend that can try because they're on a completely different network you know so then you know okay is it them or is it me i mean i've even seen youtube of all places certain videos um just have problems playing back they always get stuck at the same spot and every other video works fine so uh, there are a number of things that always comes down to process of elimination. Yeah, there, there's um, what you want to look for, the, the, the issue most likely, we're going to assume that you have enough CPU, you have enough drive, you have a relatively good internet connection, and you're still having trouble. A 38 gig file without a managed downloader um, is pretty complicated. So frame.io, for instance, is really designed for that. It's going to, it's, it's much more robust um, as far as bringing that kind of thing down as an example. Um, but you may find trouble downloading a lot of these things without fiber. One thing you may want to look at is an HTTP downloader. An HTTP downloader will, there's a variety of plugins and so on and so forth for Chrome that will go in. It'll open up multiple connections. It will also, it's a little bit more robust as far as um, if it, it can resume. So it knows where it's left off. That's the that's the key. The 38 gigs is just a long download and and our internet connection is usually not very good. We just don't notice it because we don't, we, we, you know, it just keeps recovering all the time. And so if you use an HTTP downloader, you can do that. You can also, with you can use um, a command line. If you have a Mac or a Linux, um, you can use command line and use, you know, there's, um, you know, there's a WeGet and curl that you can, that you can actually um, pull some of those things down directly from a command line. And that's going to be a lot more robust than, than simply downloading the file from a, from a page. And I'm assuming that you don't have access to a FTP, FTP because FTP clients, there's a lot of them that can recover. So like in, on the Mac, there's transmit and transmit will recover a file that hasn't 
that it didn't download properly, it will it will keep on recovering as it goes through. But you need something that has um, some recoverable recoverability as it as it works through it. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. I just want to mention we got a little more information from him uh, mm-hmm. in another question that it's on Google Drive. Laptop is NTFS, Windows 10, Internet connection is 200 Mbits. Um, we have seen, if you have a VPN on, we have seen really bad performance from Google Drive into any of the AWS data centers because they try to like mitigate some risks there. Um, so that might be one pointer to look at. And Google Drive sometimes has just horrible download performance. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't recommend putting anything on Google Drive or Dropbox that is more than about four gigs. Like, I just think that any, anything over that, it becomes really unstable. It's just not, it's built as, a, it's a really a consumer file uh, transfer s- solution. So, um, and so if if there's any way that you have a person that has it, remember that you can get a service like Frame.io that is, I think the th- at 38 gigs, it's it's the free service. <laughs> you can get somebody to upload it there. It's going to upload a lot faster and download a lot more stably than Google or Dropbox, uh, Google Drive and Dropbox, which are uh, we try to keep out of production. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Ian Alford in London, and Ian asks, "What are the cheapest single lens reflex cameras we could get away with using for low budget church live streaming into an ATEM for 1080p on YouTube? We have quite low light on some parts of the stage." Go, ahead, Jonas. Um, at my church, we use the Panasonic Lumix uh, G7 or G7D, depending on where you live. Uh, 7D is for Europe and seven is for the US. So take a look at that. And we have really great luck with them. They're super cheap. Uh, you can get them on MP, MPB, which is like a used market sale in like used conditions. But if you buy it like as new or as good as new, it's almost like we have never had an issue. Um, and they are great cameras. They're micro for felt. They have a micro HDMI out. So like go to Amazon, buy 10 micro HDMI to HDMI little um, adapters. If you have just like uh, this one, don't buy any cables. Like get this one that just converts it. Tape it to your camera. And that's what we use. And we have had really great success with them. If you have a super low light stage, you can think about like some cheaper, faster lenses that are not as uh, that aren't zoom for the M- microphone files, but it works quite okay. Everything else will be quite a bunch more expensive. Good, Chris. Uh, well, for starters, I, I would stay away from any DLSRs. Um, I'm guessing what you're thinking is more along the lines of, of mirrorless, like as as Jonas said. Um, you can get a used Sony A6000 for a couple hundred bucks. Um, uh, similar similar concept, um, but if you're looking to just save, get cheap, save money. Um, one thing you could also look at is something like the Marshalls or the Adas, which will give you an HDMI camera for 250, 300 bucks. And um, it, it's not uh, super high quality, but uh, but it's cheap and gives you a, a pretty decent quality. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, I'd, for a camera, yeah, I would definitely, it, especially if you're doing this for a church and you got volunteers, uh, you might want to think about uh, going to something like a handy cam that can also handle low light, and uh, it, you don't have to worry about lenses or anything like that. Um, but the other thing is, if you do get an SLR, make sure that you have you get one that has a clean feed out, because uh, otherwise you'll have you know like the view meters over here and then the resolution over here. So uh, Canon uh, T series usually is the lower end Canon ones, but 
the cheapest solution would probably be try and figure out your lighting on stage and get that fixed first because there's only so much that these cameras can do, especially from that far of a distance. And putting a little bit more light on the stage not only helps your feed, but also helps if there's a congregation see the stage. So lighting would be my first uh, way to go. Yeah, one thing also to consider, and this is a little bit taking this a little bit further, is um, from a variety of different denominations and religions, we've worked with some some houses of worship, and one of the things that's turning out to be relatively successful is a lot of a lot of churches have multiple services. They have the nine o'clock service and the eleven o'clock service and the four o'clock service in the afternoon, and one of the things that that they they're starting to do is do another service just for online. So instead of trying to merge these two things together. They take the same sermon and this, you know, and build something that is just for the online audience. Um, and the response is, you know, the average view time is uh, considerably higher than, than, than the average view time on a, on a typical um, uh, house of worship uh, stream. So you may want to think about um, that. It simplifies a lot of your your hardware. Um, suddenly, uh, you know, cameras that wouldn't work in a large uh, church suddenly work in a small, um, you know, sanctuary or, or other things like that. And sometimes they're in the same sanctuary; it's just empty. And now they're now they've brought it up. They've done some pipe and drape behind it to knock down some of the reflection. Um, and then they um, have you know a hand a camera or a handful of cameras. And then they also do some more interactive stuff that they can do with an online audience that they couldn't do in the physical uh, audience. But I think that you're going to see more and more houses of worship from a variety of different denominations moving towards a, just making it the, like they have multiple sermons or multiple sessions, they make one of them online um, rather than trying to merge it because the merge, the, the hybrid experience is not great <laughs> from a church. Um, uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas is up next. And he asks, is ChatGPT Plus worth the $20 a month for the 70 plugins just released under beta features? Which plugins are the most youth useful and worthwhile? And he has a link there. Go, John. Earlier this week, they added plugins into ChatGPT Plus if you're a paying member. Most important being the web interface for Bing. So they added Bing into, into ChatGPT 4 Plus. They had to because Bart Bard came out and had that built in. Um, I, I played with it for the last couple of days, and it's super slow. The the integration of of Bing into uh, ChatGPT it's really it really slow on on its results, and it fails a lot of times. As far as the plugin goes, you remember CD-ROMs when CD-ROMs came out on the market, and all these people tried to shovelware their stuff onto a CD, which was a giant failure. That's kind of what I'm seeing with all these plugins. Most of them are superfluous and do nothing more than what they do on their websites already. There's a couple of interesting ones in there. Wolfram is a, is a welcomed addition. Uh, Visla is the, is the only interesting one that I've seen, which is basically taking stock videos and creating stock videos for you out of the can, which uh, the results were were underwhelming. So I am I am uh, not really seen anything of value there yet i think chat GPT, gpt plus by itself is worth 20 bucks a month which, which which i pay for um it's it's very responsive i have it you know i use it all i mean i use it all the time <laughs> so so it's uh to think about things and to work on things the the new thing that i've done now is i i give basic descriptions to chat gpt and say write me a prompt for mid-journey and then post it in a mid-journey and the mid-journey stuff turns out much better <laughs> so so the so so that's the um you know that's what i've been using a lot of it but i just have it just describe things for me or tell me something. And then I, it doesn't, 
I don't take it for the truth, but I take it as a, oh, those are things to think about or here's some things. And I go out and then Google search and jump on things. But it lets me kind of get a, a, a semi-accurate 10,000 foot view of something that I can use to start kind of start my journey of trying to learn how to do something. So uh, I think it's, I think it's definitely worth it. I think that uh, as John said, the, the plugins are worthless, you know, so um, almost all of them are worthless in my opinion. Um, but the, but the chat GPT in itself is, is really powerful. Um, the only last thing I'll say is that uh, I've been working with a couple of organizations that are taking LLMs and focusing them on all of their content. So all of their books, all of the writings of one specific person, all of those things, it is stunningly powerful. Like it is, like blows my mind to be able to take 50 books, take all that text and push it into it, and then just be able to ask it questions and have it, and what it's doing is it's returning. In one case, it returns the, a, a plain English answer and then gives me all the references that it used to, to build that, that plain in. So I, I get it. And then I immediately can research it. And it's far more powerful than anything I saw with ChatGPT. I mean, for sp specific verticals. Unbelievable. I mean, it's just really powerful. Um, next question. Chris Sabato here in the panel from Albany, Oregon. Oregon asks, I need to output QLab into an SD-SDI system. Should I use the built-in HDMI output of the Mac or get a DeckLink card in an enclosure? Good, Jonas. I would always, if you can, use the SDI output just because of the little orange dot in the top right corner of the Mac. Except if you're a thousand percent sure you will never ever need any live input into QLab, and you can disable its microphone activity and you will never have anything on that Mac that will ever try to use a microphone or looks like trying to use a microphone that would pop that up. So like in a worst case, you can disable the microphone uh, access for QLab, but be aware that also prevents video uh, live input. So keep that in mind. But other than that, you could on a hinge get away with the HDMI. Otherwise, yeah, we'll try to get a deck link. Or even better, if you only need one output, uh, look at the Ultra Studio display, which is like a Thunderbolt one channel for 150 bucks. It's a really great device. Jonas, how do you disable audio and video in on QLab such that it doesn't give us the evil orange dot? Yeah, I haven't done it myself, but apparently you can go into the set the security settings on Mac OS, go in there Take and remove the microphone permission, which then like makes it fail and like not super happy about live input. That's why you can't live use live inputs anymore. Yeah. It's not great. It's a horrible right. solution, but it's a horrible the orange dot yeah. was a horrible idea. No, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, so I do need to bring in a live input. So I, I guess that kind of answers my question. So so any live input is gonna is gonna give that orange dot regardless of on it's HDMI out, not on, on not HDMI. on SDI out, on the HDMI out. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that answers that question. <laughs> I, yeah. So I, I would just get the Ultra Studio Monitor 3G. It's one channel SDI out and HDMI out. It's the same. But that way you can get a clean SDA or HDMI out for 150 bucks. Well, devices. Yeah, yeah. Because I need to I need to bring in a signal too. So I, that's why I was thinking the deck link yeah, is then that I can bring one link. in and one out. And I've got two extra, but yeah, I, I did talk to someone who knew a fair bit about this and they said, Well, if you're a professional that doesn't that that, that cares about the orange dot, you should use a professional output, which is an SDI <laughs> SDI output. That was the response. So so anyway, that might be part of the part of the situation. Uh, next question. 
Douglas Carmichael's up next. He says one of the reasons policymakers claim that AM radio is important for public safety is that it is, quote, more resilient. With modern broadcasters relying heavily on IT infrastructures, wouldn't those infrastructures still be a point of vulnerability? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think the, the maybe it's different now. The emergency broadcast system used to be arranged on AM stations, clear channel stations. So there are certain stations across uh, America uh, that are designated clear channel. There are no other frequent, there are no other radio stations on those channels within uh, the reachable area of those transmitters uh, or even beyond the reachable area of those transmitters. So those are designated as primary EBS stations and other stations have equipment that monitors those frequencies in case of an emergency and will trick, uh, trip off uh, uh, devices in the studio for broadcasters and FM and so on. So the, the means of distributing that emergency broadcast information is can be over AM radio. So even if phone lines go down or switching stations go down or the internet goes down, you'll still have that radio to communicate. Uh, whether it is communicating to the general public or not, that remains questionable uh, as to whether removing an AM radio from your Tesla is a problem because then you wouldn't be able to hear the direct messages. You'd still probably be able to hear FM transmissions of people that are relaying that emergency information. And a lot of times, and I was I was on the air when the phony emergency notification came out in the uh, uh, early 70s, I think it was, uh, that was supposed to be just a test and it they put the wrong tape up, and it comes in over teletype. So uh, they're not depending on the internet. They're depending upon uh, this network. It depends on closed uh, uh, telephone lines between the broadcast stations and the emergency broadcast network. So uh, it wouldn't be affected, I don't believe, by IT infrastructure very much. Maybe I'm wrong these days. Maybe somebody else who's worked more in radio now can tell us. Go ahead, Jonas. This is... Douglas, you're talking about content creation. In a worst-case emergency, we'll just drive people to the place where they can plug in a microphone and start transmitting. So the IT infrastructure is a vulnerability. But what they are also talking about is the distribution of it. And their old, old radio still is really good because you need to send one signal out and it can be received by everyone without you needing to send a packet to every one of those receivers. That's a big difference still for emergency communications. The load doesn't change with how many people are tuning in. So yes, there is still a point on the content creation, but I'm sure that in a case of emergency, someone will be getting driven there physically and do it from there. So that won't be an issue, but the distribution aspect is also really important. And there is where, like Courtney said, if the internet goes down, that's harder to recover. You rely on more infrastructure and the distribution if you use the digital versions of, uh, or like internet versions of radio. I go, Jeffrey. Even if FM goes down, I mean, if you think about it, uh, I, I looked at the radio stations in my market and the FM stations are six times more than what my AM stations are just in my area alone. 
So there's more opportunity to uh, have a channel. And I know that uh, if, you, if you're driving on the highway, most, high, most states have an emergency channel and they'll have it on an FM station. They'll have it on an AM station as, as well. So if you can't get to one, you'll be able to get to the other uh, just as easily. So there's, there's a lot of different ways. Is even if you had something, you know, like the old radio in the basement, the little hand crank type uh, radio that does AM and FM, you'll get a chance, uh, you'll get an opportunity to hear what's going on with whatever the, uh, the issue is. So maybe the better thing to do is to limit the AM spectrum. Uh, for any type of commercial radio stations and then uh, and still have AM as an option of some sort in vehicles. Go ahead, Bill, real quick. I just think the number of people who can access AM radio is continually diminishing really fast. My son is 30, and I don't think he's ever listened to AM radio in his life, and I'm not sure he has a device that could accept AM radio. Not that it isn't cheap and you couldn't do it, but it's just not the way people listen to things. So for public safety, I question it. I don't think you should turn it off. <laughs> I, don't, I, think, I think they should leave it in and they should stop trying to, you know, keep on reselling, reselling, reselling all of this bandwidth. Um, you know, we should probably leave, leave that there. Um, you know, your, most cars can still pick it up. So you could go into your car and get, and get AM radio if you needed it. Um, you know, the, there's always the, you know, risk is the chance of something going wrong uh, multiplied by the consequences. Um, and uh, the consequences of not having a way to get to most consumers is extremely high if something went wrong um you know so that even though the risk is very low uh the consequences would be catastrophic and it, there'd always be still some people that could get onto that could transmit it into those um those frequencies regardless of whether the, the ip infrastructure was there uh next question bart gaffney in economic um is there a coating to create a 60-40 or 70-30 teleprompter surface on acrylic plexiglass? Long story short, I'm using a Pepper's Ghost gimmick for a children's show. Go ahead, Courtney. If you're not going to shoot a camera through it, if it's a big piece of glass or a big piece of plexiglass, you can go to a, a window company, and usually they'll sell this uh, uh, tent, which is a mylar type of uh, window film that you can apply directly to large pieces of glass or to acrylic plexiglass. They sell it by the sheet. You apply it, you wet it, apply it with water and squeegee it out, and you can get it in a, a, a one-way mirror type of film. So that would let you, uh, if you light up the, uh, the behind the glass, it'll show through. If you don't light it up, then it looks like a mirror. So if you want to do a Pepper's Ghost kind of thing, something like that could work. Uh, Teleprompter glass is going to be far too expensive uh, if you're trying to do a big sheet of glass to do a Pepper's Ghost on stage or something. Yeah, the, um, uh, there's a company called Tap Plastics here in California. I don't know how widely it's used, but you can just buy the plastic with it already, with the mirroring already on it um, from Tap Plastics. It's not very expensive. Um, next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, and here on the panel, when lighting a face for video, for example, appearing on this very panel, why is it typically configured with a key light and a fill light instead of identical light evenly distributed on both sides of a person's face? It's not that it hasn't been done. Uh, you know, uh, Jill Greenberg got really well known for it. Uh, she's a, a very famous photographer, or fairly famous. She had a moment uh, of being a famous photographer because she did exactly what you're talking about. In fact, we had clients that asked for the, the Jill Greenberg lighting, which was two big sources on either side that, that didn't have a lot of fill in the center. Um, and uh, it looks a little um, scary. And go ahead, Bill. 
Yeah, search under clamshell lighting. That's really that approach. The real answer is because what we're trying to do with lighting a person for video is to create the illusion of three-dimensional space on a two-dimensional plane. So the fact that you can see shadows, like the shadow below my nose here, gives you the cue that my nose is sticking out from my face. So really sculpturing a face so that it appears more natural and three-dimensional is the reason we use three-point lighting and things like that. Um, and getting away from that, you know, I've always found that that kind of clamshell or broad lighting works really great for really good-looking people. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, Bill's right. It's used for, uh, it's more dramatic lighting. You know, if you have a key and a fill ratio, uh, it gives you more drama in the scene. Women fashion photography, you know, and women uh, of a certain age like to have the uh, ring light or the, the light surrounding the lens coming from both sides of the lens because it eliminates all shadows and wrinkles. So you don't see the wrinkles because everything looks very flat. But it has a very flat, ghosty look to it. And then you have to add dimension by adding a brighter backlight or rim light just to give it some dimension because the face will look so flat and featureless that I, I don't really like the look of ring lighting. Uh, and I had, a, I had a DP that I worked with once. as a, I was a sound mixer, and he had a tendency of shooting commercials. He would build this wall of foam core reflecting and he cut a little hole in it for the camera to stick through. And this wall would extend up and over the talent and underneath the talent and to the sides of the talent. It was a giant parabolic reflector. Try and record sound, get a microphone in there and somehow record the sound reflecting off of that. It was not good for me. Go ahead, Jonas. It's interesting with lighting. You almost always try to, if you don't, if you aren't after a specific look, you're trying to get back to reality. So our brain and our species is trained to have one really big light source and something else that it bounces off, like the sun and something else. So if you aren't looking at someone who's like facing the sun and looking at it, you will always have that type of look if it, because you have the light sideways. That's a, one of the reasons why it feels natural if we light that way. Go ahead, Jeff. So my takeaways clearly from what Bill said, first of all, is I definitely want that inconsistency then. <laughs> and um, so that's fascinating. I, I didn't know that it was what this all boils down to is the, the psychological uh, uh, non-conscious cues that we get from the lighting. I didn't know if it was a technical or, or dated back to just, you know, old uh, lamps you know bulbs and and this the main one was too expensive so we just used this cheaper water so that's uh that's fascinating okay thank you guys everything is psychological it's just whether you notice it or not <laughs> so we have you know those things uh, one of the things that we oftentimes we we do also try to standardize it so that a lot of people are mostly lit from the front because when you group everybody together you see this in broadcast television we have we've had we have when i bring in film dps they always want to create dramatic lighting where it's that big big key in a fill and that person on broadcast always looks goofy because they just look like they're trying too hard because the you know because it's not just like this is their face the other advantage of going up, up at an angle like this because a lot of us have a little extra skin down here, maybe a little skin filled with a little bit of fat, and um, and uh, and so the uh, so by having it come down at an angle, we start to cut out our chin, you know, with a shadow. So we cover up some of that uh, some of that double chin uh, with 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 that angle. So usually, what we try to do is take that light and go up until we stop seeing. You want to see the highlights in someone's eyes when they're looking at the camera. 
Um, so you go up as high as you can where you still see those highlights. Um, and then that starts to cut, that starts to frame the face with their, with the, the bones in their chin, as opposed to the skin in their neck. Uh, go ahead, uh, so, uh, Courtney. Yeah. Here's a, here's a good example. We all remember from Star Trek, the Captain Kirk, I light splash of light across his, whenever he was going to announce something really serious, they cut to him and they'd have that slash of light across his face just <laughs> for question. dramatic effect. <laughs> Next question. Next question comes from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. And Kenny says, I want to talk over shared video on Zoom, but cannot. Using a Magewell interface to share, Zoom treats this as a camera and switches the audio sources, eliminating the main camera audio during share. How do I fix this? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, now now maybe I'm missing a piece of this that that maybe is obvious to some of the others, but um you know, if it's going through that interface, if the camera is going into that, then it is now being seen as an HDMI source, which of course can have audio. Um, and if it's going to that, not directly to the computer, then the, the, the computer doesn't know that's a USB device, mm -hmm. uh, vice versa. If it is, then it, it may be auto switching to that audio source, but you it shouldn't have eliminated it from Zoom. And, and then you should still be able to always select a different video and audio device. And, and then I guess lastly, I mean, if you're relying on going through the audio of the camera, I mean, that's mm -hmm. never great. So, you know, uh, some an inexpensive uh, separate microphone will will solve lots of problems, including that. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. There might be a couple of things that are happening there. A, you might be right that uh, you're trying to switch a camera to the major world input, and that also causes Zoom to switch. I haven't seen that behavior before, so that would be even stranger to me. What you might also be doing is sharing the major world input as a second camera through screen sharing and clicking the optimize for video in that. That will also enable audio. If Zoom is getting any audio twice, it will start to put one down and it might cause you the zoom auto like noise removal uh, and echo removal to not hear you at all anymore. So that would be something I would look into. And then also check on the major device if you're using that for everything and you're switching on that and suddenly zoom isn't getting the audio that there isn't an audio follows video mode enabled and something like that could also be the source of this issue. Yeah, both of those will coexist if, if you have share audio in your screen share. And I think it's in the advanced menu is where you can share audio. So you can have a second audio input and then that will be con not considered part of that mix. The other way to do it on at least, well, you can do it on both Mac and PC. I think you use a, some fruit or vegetable to mix the audio. Um, I think it's tomatoes or potatoes or something like that. Um, on the PC and on the Mac, you'd use loopback. And then you take both of those inputs and you merge them together inside of loopback or audio hijack. Now you have full control over that. The other thing you can possibly use if you're doing that kind of thing is um, uh, Soundesk by Loud Lab. We've been playing with it a lot um, where you can now have a full live mixer of all your inputs coming in. And now you're mixing everything together. That's really the, the pro way to do this is to find a way that you're going to have those mixes coming in and then finding a piece of software or hardware that you can mix those and match them so that they're not two different sources going into Zoom, but one source that you have external control over. Next question. Next one comes to us from Bobby Grandone in Westbury. I have a Lumix GH4. Has anybody used this mirrorless camera as a webcam? Go, Jonas. Yeah, it's a great camera for that. Uh, have any HDMI to USB adapter and then uh, 
use there's these great uh you can get a power um, adapter that you put in where your uh, battery normally goes and then keeps on running we have a couple people on the panel who are using a gh force still and it's still a good camera for that next question Jason Roberts Shaw in Sarasota, Florida is back with options for colorful background access lighting that can be controlled by a stream deck. Options in addition to nano leafs. And what do the panelists recommend? Go ahead, Jonas. So you're seeing the nano leaves behind me right now. And those are a good option. Then um, on the left uh, for my curtain, I have one of the Elgato LED strips mounted above. So I can throw my stream deck and it's even cooler with the stream deck plus you can go in there and you can change colors and now it looks more natural or you can choose a different color. Um, that has been really cool. Uh, it's a little more expensive than the, your typical ones, but it is really great integrated with the stream deck and allows you to create the scene that you want really nicely. Um, I really like mine. I go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, Elgato, the Elgato strip lights are probably going to be the best integrated to the Stream Deck because they, they're trying to create that infrastructure. Uh, so you buy all Elgato stuff. Uh, Philips has the Philips Hue lights, which are Edison-style bulbs that you can put into lamps and use them that way. Uh, Govi makes a strip, strip lights that also connect up. They've, uh, they've started uh, doing what's called Matter, which is a universal system for uh, for different types of devices whether it be a personal device or, or a personal uh, assistant device like a, a, a um, echo or a google home or anything like that uh, to doing over the air and being able to bring in your own commands via api uh, you can also use ifttt but be warned when you do that you're going to be going out to the internet and coming back in and sometimes the delay on that could be, you know, upwards to a few minutes to uh, to finally turn on your lights. So uh, those are some of the options right there uh, that I have. Go ahead, Courtney. I'm just using a cheap option. I'm using these uh, Fate FEIT color changing bulbs that are Wi-Fi enabled. You just plug them into a socket. You can control them through uh, an app that comes with them, or through uh, Google Home or the A Lady. Uh, so you can do it with that. I don't know whether there's a plugin to use it with Stream Deck or not. Maybe Stream Deck has an interface to uh, Alexa or Google Home that would allow you to control things on those networks. I go ahead, Jeff. Um, uh, one little tip, by the way, if you are going to uh, try and integrate or rely on IFTTT, um, you then I would suggest getting, uh, you know, a paid pro account. It, uh, among other features, it gives you um, much more, uh, much faster and uh, guaranteed when it works, uh, guaranteed um, response time. So they're much more responsive than, than if you're just doing it with a free account. Next question. Next one's in from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. Is there a percentage of watt capacity on an under, uninterruptible power supply that you don't cross? For example, if your UPS has a 1200 watt capacity, you don't plug in more than a thousand watts. My general rule I find useful here too is 40 to 60%. <laughs> like that's what you want to be at is for, you don't want to cross 60% um, by on purpose. Uh, on a UPS. Um, so generally, if you start seeing it going over 60%, get another UPS, uh, figure out what needs to be on it. 
um, in, in a pinch, go ahead and you can go ahead and do that if you really need to have it there for momentary. But by doing that, what happens is, is that you're looking at that UPS and things, some things turn on, some things turn off, the fans turn on, the, the fans turn off, all kinds of other things happen. And you end up with surges on the UPS that are, are going to go over that cap. So, um, so usually like, for instance, we have these elementals and when they turn on, they just massive, you know, they turn everything on. Um, and so what we want to do is look at our UPS when that, that startup cycle is happening um, to see what it's actually using there. Um, so, but I would stick with 40 to 60% capacity is what you should be. That's your nominal for a UPS. And then, and then if you do that, you won't have any surprises and it lasts a little longer too. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, a simple little question here. How can comedy be conveyed and delivered on Zoom? Talking stand-ups and sitcoms. Uh, go ahead, Jonas. I think that's mostly an issue with the person doing it and not the audience. I mean, it even works over nonlinear ways where you're like are watching it on demand. So I think the problem most of the time is that the performers don't feel the same way while performing to an empty screen. So that's where Zoom can come in and it's really great for them to see people reacting to them. So I think it's actually more for the performer than for the audience. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. I would actually argue the the other point, which is, uh, I, I mean, it does take the performer has to be good and has to be funny. Um, certainly, they rely on cues from the audience, but but we also the the viewers of that comedy rely heavily on uh, the response of our peers. When you're in the audience. You know, usually if no one is laughing, you're not going to just bust out laughing and vice versa. If everyone's laughing, you know, you just get that subtle cue that, oh, oh yeah, that is funny. And and so if someone is performing and you hear no audience, you know, every single joke that probably is funny, but it just sounds like crickets in the room, it won't appear as funny. I mean, it's why sitcoms, of course, always have that damn laugh track in there because there's no audience, you know, doing that usually. Um, but that's kind of that subtle psychological cue that, oh yeah, that was funny. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, has anyone ever experimented with 3D modeling tools on iOS devices like Shapeyard? And he's got a link there to it. Uh, yeah, I haven't found any of these to be very fun to use. <laughs> They're just a really small screen to try to do 3D modeling. Maybe it's because I've done 3D modeling on big screens, but I found it a little painful. So so anyway, so I think that I haven't uh, been able to kind of turn that that core. I, I have Shapeyard on my phone. I was just trying to find it while in the last question. <laughs> They're trying to figure things out. And and uh, and then I remember why I didn't use it. It's just, it, it's just cumbersome to try to do that uh, right now. Next question. Comes from Robert Robin Cutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia. It takes a lot of clicks to get to the office hours breakout room and pin it. Is there a way to shortcut this? Uh, not that we know of right now. There's no deep links to the to individual rooms. Uh, next question. Bart Gaffney and Economowak. Uh, inexpensive do-it-yourself playback deck capable of two to three simultaneous streams, controllable via QLab, Companion, and Stream Deck. Uh, I think that I would probably say multiple copies of um, PlayAppy. <laughs> like that's that's if you're looking for something to to do that. I mean, I think that it's a it's a playback deck. You'd have simultaneous streams. I mean, you have relatively inexpensive 
pieces of hardware. It doesn't have a lot of overhead, um, and you'd be able to control it through. I think you'd be able to control it through all of those things. Is that right, Jonas? Yeah, you should be able to uh, to send HTTP commands from all of them or TCP commands to the hyperdeck uh, uh, thing. Yeah, you might be even able to launch multiple on one system if you like do a little around digging. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and I think that you know again, if you have um, if you have uh, a decklink card, I mean it's not in the most inexpensive. Then something like QLab will do all of those things. Like it'll just push all of those things out. But if you have some inexpensive uh, pieces of hardware, it could be a little. I have this little melee, this little, these little PCs, um, or uh, or the, the the problem is is that. The PCs and the Raspberry Pis and the and the Macs at, at Costco are all the same price right now. <laughs> so, so I would normally say Raspberry Pis, but they're so expensive uh, at the moment. So, um, so anyway, so but but I think that having a couple of those, I would rather have a couple devices firing off playbacks than one device trying to fire them all off personally, just because it gives you a little bit of redundancy. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. I'm going to be moving into an apartment very soon, and I'm interested in. Uh, Setting up my studio IT lab, would it be best course of action to offer to pay for running the Ethernet cables myself and have the cables stay with the unit when I leave? Go, Jeffrey. If you're you're talking about running the cables in the wall, then the most ap- apartment complexes will not let you do that. They'll they'll have to have their own maintenance staff take care of that uh, to bring it in because especially when you leave. They got to account for where those cables are and how they are. And then, of course, there's that whole, is it my cable or is it your cable type situation? Uh, and uh, you don't want it. So you, basically, you're going to have to talk to maintenance about uh, setting it up. Uh, you can set up a lab using cables. And if you can affix things to the wall via screws, and, and even you can do the double-sided tape and just getting those little rails that uh, that you can take a cable and then run it through the rail uh, so it hides the cable and uh, and then puts it through the wall or on the wall, so you can easily take it off when you move out. Next, next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, is up next. What's a good choice for a MagSafe protective case for an iPhone for Android and Go for Jeff. Android? Go, Jeff, real quick. I'll give you the Apple one, which is just you know to give you one simple recommendation that will work. You don't have to worry about it. Is Apple? I mean. You know, can't account for taste, but functionally, it will work perfect with a MagSafe. Go ahead, Chris. Well, <clears throat> for for Android, I will give you uh, Peak Design. Uh, it's a little expensive, I think, for a, a case in their ecosystem, um, but I I think it's fantastic. Next question. Next one comes to us from uh, Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says Moog Music has reintroduced the Mini Moog Model D with the exact same design as the 1970 era Mini Moog. Considering the panoply of, ch- of clones and emulation, is this just a collector's product? And he's got a link there. Panoply. What a good use of panoply. Anyway, and, go ahead. Uh, no play. Well, uh, I would say, you know, there's, there's there, as you say, there are, are lots of clones. One I have and one Alex has is the. Poly D from Behringer. Yep. That's it on the left there, and that's the Mini Moog on the right. You'll see that the Mini Moog has uh, oh eight more keys on it than the than the Poly D, but the Poly D has one more oscillator than the Mini Moog does. And I've heard comparisons between the Mini Moog 
and the poly D. And it's really hard, if not impossible, to tell the difference between the two of them. So if you're just doing it for the sound, uh, I'd go with the cheaper, you know, poly D or, or one of its clones than to go for the mini Moog. There's just prestige in the Moog name. So you're paying a lot for that label on there when there are a lot of uh, other other options that can sound almost the same and give you a little more versatility. Yeah, I I think I, I don't think I'd go on stage with a Behringer unless I was like a little like I would go on stage with a Moog. <laughs> and if I had clients, I'd have them uh the Moog. Um I don't I think that if I but for, for home I'm very happy with the the Poly D. I think that it it does a great job at what it at, at what's there. And I think it has more um I think the Poly D has more outputs um than the than the uh than the Moog, I think on the back. So uh, maybe it's different synthesizer that I have because there was there was one that I had. There's a, oh no, it's the RD8. The RD8 has a lot more channels than the original 808. Um, so it's something that, that it's interesting. Anyway, uh, we're now changing subjects to our second hour and talking about the ten thousand dollars studio. So we, it was a back and forth about whether it should be ten thousand or 5,000. We've decided to land at 10,000. So we got a little more headroom on it. And, um, and so we, uh, so, but the idea is, is that, you know, it could, we, we might show you things that are 5,000 uh, that you can, you can get into, get everything together there. Um, but really what we're talking about, I think is when we start talking about these kinds of numbers, um, you know, when we talk about less than a thousand, we're talking about, you know, basic, I just want to make things work. If what we do is starts to become your business, um, then you start wanting to spend more money if you're going to, you know, so this is more of a entry level, what I would say is entry level uh, business connection. Um, and so you're a, you're a C-suite, you are, you do what we do for a living. Uh, you are, you know, serious about what those things are. Then you want to start, you're, you're going to start spending more money on those, um, on those systems. And so, so I think that that is where, you know, we start talking about what the budgets are and, and how we put those things together. And, you know, we can get a lot, you know, for, 5,000 or even $10,000. And so if you've got questions about that or comments, or you want to tell us what you're using there, uh, let us know. And it doesn't have to be all the way up to 10,000. Um, you know, I think that we could do a fairly solid setup for 5,000. Um, but we decided to go ahead and jump the gun and go all the way to 10. So um, we'll talk about some of the lights and process that we used. Go ahead, Jeffrey. So I'd like to show you my studio, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, We've got, I'm going to switch over here. This is my studio. This is, believe it or not, this is a completely portable studio. In fact, I've moved this studio three times in my, in my, in my career here. And right now it's sitting in what I call Studio B. I'm in Studio A, which is my, basically my production thing. So I could actually have somebody else sitting at that seat down there and I could be doing the production up here, which is the coolest thing, but that's going to, that's going to probably go past the $10,000 uh, realm here. Uh, so the brick wall that you see behind you is actually all hardware store bought. And once again, it can be dismantled and then moved and then put up. And what, and what kind you, of brick wall? What is it? What is it made of? It's just, these, this is just paneling, like, uh, like wood paneling you would get for a house. You could get mm -hmm. bricks and you could get white brick. You can get, it depends on which hardware store, what they carry. Um, you can also go online. I know home, this actually, these brick walls came from Home Depot. And are, are so, they, are they actual, is it, is it plastic or is it brick? No, it's, it's wood. 
So there. Oh. Uh, so basically, what I did was uh, with this. Uh, well, it's it's a form of wood. Wood, I guess. So, uh, so they have on the back of them. They have uh, they have braces, and then they have feet. I don't know if I can zoom in on the feet uh, from there, but uh, basically everything that's that's in there. You saw you saw one of the screws in one of the bricks. Let's zoom in on that again, really quick. There's hmm. this. There's a screw. How I much usually. Are those? About uh, thirty dollars a panel, and how big is the panel? And uh, it's a well, it's eight by eight by four, if I remember correct. But That's if kind you of go places panel. like, yeah, if you go to Home Depot or something like that, you can go, you can uh, have them cut to your specification. In fact, I had them cut these panels. I had them cut four by four because I wanted to put a little bit of distress on them, mm -hmm. so you can see like a little line there that makes it look like you know somebody's repaired some bricks. And uh, and then of course I put a over here, which is the being easily covered by the the uh, shelving system there. These bricks right here is where the seam is. So what I did was I cut the bricks in the uh, in the pattern, and then take took the top row of the bricks and then covered them. And then I'm using uh, uh, it's it's a foam clay foam. I, I'm trying to remember what it's called. It's uh, it's meant for set direction. Mm -hmm. So if you're building sets, uh, you get this clay foam, and you can then uh, mold it in, and then color it. You can paint it and uh, and make it look. So it, it it looks like like I said, somebody was uh, somebody basically uh, needed to repair the brick wall, which I like a lot. And then of course these little hexagon things. These are all 3D printed, and uh, I love that because my 3D printer on there. Now, uh, going for the main set, because as you know, a lot of people know that I do a lot of YouTube stuff. So I have all PTZ cameras in my studio, and one's over the shoulder, and one, of course, I'm controlling the other one. I also have an overhead, which is not a PTZ, and I'll show you that in a second. Uh, these are about $1,600 per camera including the NDI, you can also have an HDMI, and it does SDI as well. The cool thing about this one is if I was to turn on this TV right here, the HDMI goes straight to the TV, the NDI will is coming into, uh, in this case, vMix. So you can, uh, so I can watch and then also project it in the back. TV, uh, so I've had it for a few years, uh, it's about $100, $150. It's not, it's not 4K, but once again, for a background TV, you don't need 4K. You just need something that's not going to have too much of a reflection in the uh, in the screen, and of course, uh, positioned right. So with that, I also bought a TV stand from Amazon, and then I had to re reconfigure it so it would tilt down just a little bit. And then uh, lighting, all all my lighting is uh, newer lighting. Uh, this is a uh, LED uh, fabric panel right there. That's the one that's not on. And then I have my overhead, which is which uh, goes down to the table. And I'll show you that really quick. There's the overhead camera. That's the uh, that's the Avaya. Uh, it's basically a USB camera and a, uh, an HDMI camera. And with that, I have the HDMI camera that's going also into NDI through a, a Magewell. Uh, capture device and then brings that in. So with that all said and done, and of course you can see those van pads or moving pads uh, 
pretty much nailed to the to the roof, so I get less of the uh, air vents because you have to worry about if you're in the basement, you have to worry about those air vents if they're exposed because they'll come up when, and vibrate on you. Uh, microphone is the uh, uh, have the high LPR40. This goes into a Mac Mini M1. And uh, the screen on the left, that's actually a, uh, the ViewSonic touchscreen. So I, can, I actually have a touchscreen ability in my, uh, in my studio. So with all that said and done, that probably comes to about, and it's, it's tough to say because I've been doing this for a few years now. And, uh, and so, but we would hit about the 10, maybe $12,000 mark when you, when you bring in the table. The table is an Ergotron sit stand desk uh itself and then of course there's some extra stuff that i have that i didn't show because uh, it's tough to show in the studio behind that camera that i showed you is a vizio 50 inch tv which is my monitor uh, so i can see what's going on and then of course uh power supply uh the the network has to be poe so it controls the camera so i don't have all these cords running through the the uh, studio and uh, just little bits and pieces. So I'd say it's a little bit above ten thousand, but ten thousand dollar mark can be easily achieved with a lot of these uh, systems if you were to build it nowadays. Yeah, and I, yeah, I know this isn't really show your own studio, but but I think a lot of ours are kind of in the sub ten thousand dollar range. Um, mine looks a little bit like this. Um, this is a uh, so you know what you're looking at here. Uh, is I like monitors. I don't like curved monitors, but I like lots of them. And I get them all 24 inch so that they all kind of fit together. I put everything on arms um, so that I can kind of swing things in and out. So I swing the monitors, move them around, move them in, move them out, and kind of keep them, you know, working there. Now I have, <laughs> I don't have an expensive desk. I have a fold out, w nice wooden fold out desk. This is a standard like banquet table desk. I keep on thinking about eventually I'm going to get something better and I just haven't because there's a bunch of stuff on it. Um, here's my, my Mac studio. I've got a couple of Mac minis here that, that drive a, a variety of different things that I might want to cut to. Um, this is my matrix for my HDMIs. Uh, obviously my, my, my extreme that I have sitting right in front of me. Um, the key, this is a picture from a little while ago because that keyboard got burned out because I poured coffee on it. Um, and, um, I use a trackball. This is the one that I think Bill uses. I copied it from Bill. I, it was just easier to not take up space where I had to move my hand. So that's why I kind of moved to a trackball there. Um, there's my, one of my stream decks um, that's, that's there that, that I, that I, that's with the, with the little encoders. Um, there's my teleprompter. Everything above here is all, um, is all maker pipe. So I built this frame in maker pipe and then I bought this, this is like $15 and just hung it in there. But what I did do to make it work is I put, I folded it so it would have a little bit more thickness and then I applied grommets to it and it was, so I have a, you know, kind of a, it's just thin enough so that I can use the, the kind of the uh, pliers grommets as, as opposed to the hammer grommet, which I had an unfortunate experience with in the past. So, um, so anyway, and then behind this, there's three um, Nanlite um, 100s, the B, the B, 100 Bs. So these are bicolor 100s that are kind of pulled back a little bit of way so I get a nice safe one. Now I will say that I'm about to um, extend this upward so that it's up here and extend it outward so I have even a bigger light source. <laughs> you can't get it. You can't make that light source too big in my opinion. So I'm going to make that a little bit bigger. This is all moving blankets, 90 pound um, moving blankets that you can get ones that are black and white. It's really much better than blue because blue will make you look blue. So um, I, you know, I, get a fair bit of fill out of here. I cannot use, I use a Stellar X2 mic. 
cannot use that mic without in this room without these without these here <laughs> because it's it picks up too much and the room is all hardwood like everything and it's very complicated so it's it it, it picks up this is a, a work table that has a it it goes out this way and it has um a uh, pegboard there so i have all my wires and everything on pegboard this goes up what's nice about this being higher is i can attach this is a this is my my mic my underslung mic arm this is the uh, oc white that is attached to this table not this table and that allows me to uh, that means i don't get any any you don't hear anything bouncing because it's attached to something else um this is my little telestrator that's what i'm drawing on right now i'm drawing on this i'm drawing this on this it's very meta Anyway, um, and so, yeah, that's pretty much my, my setup, and that's, I mean, it's close. The, the camera I'm using is an FX30 um, right now, uh, and I'm pretty happy with it as far as that goes. Uh, the shelves behind me are, um, they're your basic uh, Uline shelves. You can get wire shelves that are cheaper than Uline, and they are not great. <laughs> so, so like I can just tell you, I I spent some real money on the Uline ones. Uh, my Uline ones go all the way around my my uh, my room to keep stuff there. If you wonder why I can run out and grab something and bring it right back, it's because there's just shelving. That's all there is here. Um, the I went cheaper and bought some stuff on Amazon for my for my garage, and I'm unhappy with it every day. <laughs> so so it's you know it's, it's a much these are much stiffer uh, than than the ones that I've that I bought elsewhere. Um, and, uh, that's it. There's about a, the one thing to think about when you're thinking about a studio is how far back you have it. So, um, you know, this is a solid 10 feet behind me. So I get a fair bit of, of, of bokeh because I've, I've created a lot of distance. Um, I think that if I moved it closer, I'd want to move from an FX 30 to an FX three to go to a full frame, you know, go to a full or FX six or whatever to go to a full frame sensor, um, or a, an A7 or something like that, but I'd want to go to a full sensor to shorten that depth, that depth of field. I will say that one thing that's really important, and I think people have heard me talk about it now, but since we're talking about it here, is that I did move to the Sony's because uh, I wanted that short depth of field. And when I got this kind of short depth of field with a Blackmagic camera, it didn't matter before. So I used, I had a gray screen behind me. Didn't matter before um, because I... Um, uh, because I could make my focal, my, I can make my f-stop anything I wanted because it's gray behind me. When I decided I had things behind them, but I want them to be out of focus, the problem that I had is I shortened that depth of field, and then I was constantly going like this to try to stay in focus. Uh, and so the Sony fixes all of that. It's it, the autofocus is really good, and so it made it a lot easier to to, to get this stuff done. So that's that's kind of my setup. Um, we think about that. You know, we build a lot of setups that are like this. I'll try to find some more photos to show some of the ones that we send out. Uh, go ahead, Bill. So um, I was going to show a couple of things. First of all, desk is very messy, but this is me right now. And there are some things that have changed in this. And rather than using this picture to show you kind of what's really going on, I'm going to use an older one, uh, that picture of this setup in the place I was before because it's much brighter. So you can see I'm basically arrayed around a laptop. The laptop screen right above that is my teleprompter screen. There's a Blackmagic 6K behind there. And then the floating big Sony monitor up at the top, which I find incredibly useful because the teleprompter and my computer screen I have them both dimmed so that I can work with them all the time. That overhead monitor is if somebody's showing content in office hours, I often look up there because I can see things much more clearly and read small type up there 
much easier. So I've gotten used to having the big monitor. You'll also see in this picture two little monitors flanking. There's an iPhone and an iPad on there. Those have been replaced with 16-inch uh, IPS pads that are run by US, uh, run by Thunderbolt, I think. That has been really useful to me. And in fact, if I go back to this shot really quickly, even though it's not as good, you'll see that I've changed one of my uh, monitors to vertical. I had never done that before, but I'm finding there's a lot of circumstances where vertical content is important for me. So I've gotten into gotten used to having one for scripts. And even for the office hours gallery now that is vertical, the other is horizontal. And between those two, I find it really easy to glance over and get the kinds of um, views of things that I need. I probably am pr approaching, you know, somewhere between seven and maybe $10,000 for all of this, largely because massive things like the desk. I have a Middle Atlantic desk, and you can probably see it here. That undersurface is a desk I've had for 35 years now. But it's great because it has that bridge up at the top for additional equipment, uh, and then all the rest of the little things that are involved involved in that the mic arm the microphone the the monitors that are on the desk for when i'm listening to music or building spots and i need to hear them out in the world there's just a whole bunch of things and by the time you get adding incrementally over and over and over again you're always surprised at how much you've actually spent to make everything work good jeff Oh, sorry. I actually already forgot what uh, what I was going to say. Actually, when uh, when Alex, you mentioned depth and and what you have, uh, that's a that's a great point. Especially if it's vice versa, like I have here. If you're in a very small space and have virtually no depth behind you, Alex and everyone else, if you want to talk about that, but it's entirely different considerations. Especially if you want to do anything with lighting, you know, it's why I have the spill from these lights and and, and everything. Everything else is an entirely, and then the focus, all those are a different version of that issue. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, <laughs> I was working on a, on a picture. I was going to uh, just take a look at that. I'm for, unfortunately in my uh, living room, but I think uh, uh, I kind of have this studio kind of set up. Um, it's a console I built for my Atari 800 back in 1972 that everything is glommed onto. And all of this is sitting on a rolling rack. I have my uh, Dell is down here underneath uh, the, uh, on the bottom part of this uh, rolling steel. Uh, I guess it's a, a rolling steel, like a, a tray uh, to go around and it has a UPS underneath the uh, one large 23 inch monitor. I have this uh, eight inch, uh, HP tablet over here, which handles comms and down here on a chair is the, uh, ATEM mini and the, uh, sound mixer. I have one little space for my coffee mug and my mouse is right here on a little outrigger that sticks out off of this. So there's no surface area available at all anywhere in my studio. The mic is of course on one of the $12 arms and the camera, uh, which is up here is the, uh, Canon uh, M50 Mark II, uh, which works pretty well. I haven't had any problems with it. I have a backup uh, USB camera here when uh, this one fails. Uh, I can go to that if necessary. But uh, And I have uh, for lighting, uh, which you saw here, is this uh, uh, Newar, Newar 
a light a panel light that I can swing out and waste into this printer, which is sitting directly behind the camera there. So which I can't move my camera any further away because this console was built 20 years ago and it's against the wall. So that's my setup. You go ahead, Chris. So I'm, I'm, this is not nearly high end, but like when you start, when you start putting together a studio, um, it gets expensive and things add up. And so like, while I would say that my setup is not high end, it it's, it's probably, you know, when you include, I put everything into it, it's, it's several thousand dollars. Um, so just to kind of give you a, you know, what it looks like, it's um, the, the lights are actually uh, an Alex Lindsay special. Alex tweeted out like, Hey, I like these Nanlite 68 C's. And I was like, Oh, what are these? And I, they were on sale at B and H. And so I got a pair of Nanlite 68 C's and they're, they're just single color. And, but for what I'm doing, that's, that's good enough. Um, the, the camera I use is the Marshall USB. It's a USB version of the Marshall POV cameras. And um, again, it's, it's better than a, a you know, just a, a Logitech C920, but it's not super high end. And um, I've got the the laptop with the, teleprompter from video pencil and um everything goes through vmix and um yeah so it's it's it, uh, the um for the for audio i i have the the mv7 but i'm using the xlr which goes into henry engineering sports pod which allows me to uh quickly mute and unmute but it also gives me the ability to bring in um a side channel so comms go directly into my ear and i can adjust the audio of that independently and we don't do a lot of talking back on comms but if we did um i could just push a button to talk back to comms and it would mute my my mic and um yeah so that's my setup yeah and and um when we talk about kind of remote setups um this is one that's in that kind of ballpark for what we take out um, and run. So here, here you can see um, this setup here. Um, and so what you have here is, is this is a 6K um, with a ICANN uh, teleprompter, which is relatively small and inexpensive. And and we can kind of run those in. We're using a, this is a Benro um, tripod. Only problem with this tripod is is that the interface to the to the um, uh, to the to the plate here is really tight and it makes it hard to put it put it on sometimes and there's some swearing involved to get it on i think it, it, you know it's it's like twice the number of swear words that most um plates require um we use a shotgun here uh, this is a, that's just a, a basic um i think this in this case is just a road nt2 um you know so um a road road the 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 nt2 version that is a shotgun <laughs> so anyway uh these are 68s exactly what was talked about before, what what chris was talking about there um and these are these are the um uh, the promaster um lighting uh stands which is nice because they go flat and they're easy for us to define so and then we have a little brain in here and that brain has an atem a meraki a mix pre um all stuffed really tightly you know in into that little brain with a couple hand with a couple um, outputs and so then we this this just rolls out as a snake um so that we can you know put this in here we have um a little speaker in the front of here so that we can talk to people um to have that there but this is about a ten thousand dollar range this is very high tech here you can see we took these chairs because there was a lot of echo in this room this isn't what we planned but these are the pads for the top of the cases that hold a bunch of this stuff 
And just by putting them on those chairs and setting them up there, if you're wondering why those chairs are there, it's not part of the design. It's just that that room happened to be really roomy. And we found that putting those two there cut down a lot on the reflection. So um, anyway, so that's, and this, what this is designed for is actually to have a, have one of us um, talk to the person on the other side. So our client never came to the location. They just, we just get on the internet. They jump in over Zoom. We're recording full quality you know, um, video from that camera, but they're able to have that conversation with the, with the, um, with the person. So having this kind of a remote kit that we can take out and have that, that control and still we're getting 6k, you know, un, you know, uh, black magic raw records, um, for that interview, but it also makes a pretty good setup for just, just having a conversation if, and it's, it's relatively mobile. It's a couple Pelican cases. I think it's two, two, two or three Pelican cases to get it all together. So, um, and during COVID, we sent, we sent, we built these to, we actually sent them to people um, for, you know, that they had to build themselves. So we had instructions on how to put them together. All right, let's go to the next question. The next question comes to us from John Preto in Las Vegas. Tom Ferguson's 10K studio package. We have a graphic that Sabato will show off. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Chris. It's, it's me. Alex, yeah, it's uh, John. Oh, sorry. There's Chris has got the the, got yeah, the I, uh, graphic. Okay. I got a call from Tom yesterday. He's not feeling well today, but he put a lot of work into this and sourcing it exactly at ten thousand dollars nine 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 five. There we go. And so and so on the video section, FX thirty. Everybody seems to love this camera, and it's specking out great. A lot of people are switching over. He's using the Sony FE twenty four to seventy f point two eight GM two. It's great, great lens. And then for a rear cam, he's he's calling this the rear camera. He's Insta three sixty, and then using the Osbet UVC to get that back to HDMI to feed into the. And the one challenge there is that you can't control the. You can't control link. It. Yeah, that's right. That is that is a problem. Um, and then for audio, the Mix Pre three with noise assist built in it. He's got the the Rolls mic switch there. MS uh, uh, one eleven uh, mic switch Elgato mic arm into a high LPR forty. And then Linsoul KZS tens uh, for in ears, and then lighting is using the Godox ES forty fives for for key and fill, and he's got two Godox smaller ones CL for a rear light and and for a kicker in the back, and then the Glide Gear teleprompter TMP one hundred with the Lilliput A one A eleven there, and then computer Mac Mini M two four K Dell twenty uh, seven inch monitor. And the only thing I don't like about Tom's situation is the little baby Apple keyboard and the, and the horrible right. Mac mouse. <laughs> Those are the two things that I would upgrade. Uh, the switch, the uh, switcher, Blackmagic uh, ATM Extreme ISO, uh, an Apple TV. It's always good to have an Apple TV around for all kinds of inputs into this. A bunch of cables. I found uh, just a picture off of uh, off of Google there. And then miscellaneous mounts. He's got three hundred dollars for for mounts and $325 for associated cables and that total 9995. Yeah, and and that's a great setup and and that really shows you why we made it 10 rather than 5 is that this is a really solid setup. Like this is a you know this is going to you're going to you're going to look and sound really good um in that. And by the way that the Mac, the Apple TV it's not just for watching TV. You can of course use that for a super easy way to share anything so you do airplay from your ipad from your phone from your mac it just it you now have this kind of swiss army knife if you're a mac user or apple 
ecosystem user. You have a e- super easy way to just put anything into the switcher uh, that you want. So that's that's the big advantage of the Apple TV and you can watch movies. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What's the purpose of your $10,000 studio? Interview, demo, narrative? Is post gear to be included or is it live only? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Well, for me, it's it's uh, I do a lot of YouTube. I do a lot of Amazon lives and and uh, and of course uh, unboxings and first looks. So it's for my YouTube channel. But I've also done a lot of a uh, lot of stuff outside of outside of my channels uh, to you know, like for instance, getting on office hours or anything like that. But I, what I like is the fact that I have my production studio now. So if I'm actually doing somebody else's show uh, through like. ISO into uh, creating uh, creating SuperSource and things like that. Uh, I can do it from up here rather than down there because in all reality, sometimes it gets a little bit comfortable to be sitting at your studio for hours on end. Yeah, good, Chris. For me, it's just fun. I mean, it it started with with COVID and you know wanting to look good when uh, at work and whatnot. And I, you know, I have the the benefit of being able to bring some equipment home from work to, that we don't use anymore and stuff like that to kind of add to it. Um, but, but it's just fun. It's, it's fun to play around and uh, tweak things and uh, make things better. Good, Bill. For me, this is my living. This is it, It's a combination of content creation. I'm predominantly an editor, so I spend a lot of my time editing work for clients. So they send me digital files, and I turn them into programs and then ship them off uh, online and get paid for it. So that's the heart and soul of everything. So this is an income-generating system. Um, I do editing, and I also do a lot of voiceover work. So the addition of an upgraded microphone and um, software that allows you to do recording and mastering and shipping off is the other part of how I make my living. So those are, you know, this all surrounds, uh, this adds a nice video layer on top of the audio work that I would have been doing all through my life anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, the, I mean, we've talked about this a thousand times, but this is this is the new suit and tie, you know, and when, you know, there's definitely people who have spent $10,000 more on their car or have a couple of suits that were expensive or have, you know, things that they do that they, that you use when you're, especially in a professional environment, it's not just for doing, I'm just doing an interview or a demo, but really the, if you interact, I don't, I'm not showing up at your office very often and I want to be on my, you know, I want to put my best foot forward. And so a lot of times I just have this set up because that, that is, um, it definitely positions it. I strongly believe that I've, that during COVID and even after, I mean, I remember a couple of clients have just said, well, I'm really glad you're doing this. And, and literally they're making that decision based on this frame. <laughs> like, you know, that, that if I'm going to be doing live streaming for them or I'm doing virtual events for them, I seem to know what I'm doing because I look better than they've ever seen on Zoom, you know, and, and, and I look better because they're all on webcams, <laughs> you know, and it's so, uh, so here I'm just, I'm just keeping up with the Joneses at, you know, when I'm on a show, when I'm on a, any average meeting, generally, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I look much better than I do in person. <laughs> so, so the, um, so I think that that is the, uh, um, that's the, that's the real advantage from us, from a sales perspective, from a confidence perspective, 
those things make a difference. And, you know, it, people will tell you, I mean, if you're doing a sales thing, people decide what they're going to dress in. They decide what car they're going to show up in and they decide, you know, how they're going to present the room. And in this case, I'm that's what I'm doing every single day and building confidence with people who are going to hire me to do this thing. So um, I think that if you're in this business and you're showing up on a with a little webcam on your on your camera, you're missing a pretty big opportunity. Um, now, you, again, we have the $1,000 one, which is a little bit more reasonable and you get, get you there. But if, if this starts to become your business, you really do need to, you know, up the game to be competitive. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I've always had a computer console here in the corner here back into the early 80s. Um, but it's, you know, it's gone through a number of different computer upgrades. But uh, only when COVID hit and I got to be on office hours did I upgrade it to audio video production. Uh, here I added the better camera. I added the uh, better microphone and the uh, ATEM. I had ATEMs, but not uh, in my living room. I had so the larger rack mount uh, ATEM switchers, but for my work in, in the field, but but nothing here in the living room. So I got the uh, mini and the ISO. So uh, it, it helps improve my look here. I, I primarily now, since I'm not writing software or doing graphics anymore for television, the uh, I don't use this console setup very often. I'm more comfortable in a in a easy chair over with a laptop on a in front of me on a tray. So um, I do do my uh, union meetings from this, and it's the union of sound and video engineers. And uh, at the end of each of those meetings, which it could be about a hundred people uh, uh, over Zoom, I'm always voted the one with the best audio and video. So I guess I'm pretty <laughs> proud of that amongst all the audio and video engineers that are in the union. I, for some reason, I imagine oh, Courtney just walking through there. Are you not entertained? Anyway, so so you're like yeah, so. <laughs> all right, next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida here on the panel. When thinking about lighting and cameras, what are the considerations if you want to have lights behind you to be visible on camera, such as the tube lights that Alex mentioned? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and I'm going to share a picture also if you guys see this. This was, by the way, if anyone watched Zoom's AI Work Transformation Summit Videos are, are available for replay. Interesting stuff. Uh, this one, by the way, this guy's title uh, is awesome. Distinguished Architect is his title. But uh, this made me also think of, Alex, uh, when you showed one time you you were on the show from a hotel room and you had the lighting. So it, it occurred to me there's got to be some considerations that I'm not aware of, of having lights facing the camera. It's a cool effect, but I'm sure it has to be dealt with uh, without blowing out then the, the actual person you want to focus on. Yeah, and, and it it's a very YouTuber thing to do. You know, YouTube-y thing to do is to have lights in the background there. And he's using those look like the pano, the, the, um, the, uh, the pavo lights, you know, pavo tubes from Nanlite. That's what, I mean, that's what they look like there. And then of course he's got some little LEDs that are, that are hidden under the, or behind the shelf. I think it's a really fun frame. I think the frame would look better if it was pushed back about three feet and a little bit more out of focus. It would, it would have a very, um, you know, and it's a little tilted, but I, I, mine's a little tilted right now too. <laughs> Every time I reset my camera. Um, yeah, but, but I think that, uh, the other thing to look at is the seven C. And it's going to get complicated because there's the the pano, there's the Nanlite pano pavo tubes that are six six C's. Aperture has a seven C, which is a standard uh, interface for a regular light. 
that has that you can put in 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 hotel rooms that have standard lights. I I have been known. I take those with me, and I will unscrew their lights and put and put them in a shelf in a in a little corner, and I'll put in the the seven C's. And I, I replace all the lights in the in the hotel, and I can color them with my phone, so I can sit there and, and you know kind of play with them as well. So I've I've done that as well, and it's been uh, pretty effective. Yeah, go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, and, and in addition, especially if you're doing unboxings or if you're looking at uh, at products and you're using a table to do that, uh, having those lights in the right positions and and in the right. Yeah, in the right positions, they can actually help light the table. They can help light the product, and of course, they help light you with a little bit of key fill in the back. Uh, so you can you can work it from there. I've I've tried the Pavo tube thing. It really doesn't work for my studio, but uh, I've I've used it for a couple other people, and uh, really got them to highlight different things. Not only the table, but also you know if they have all these knickknacks and uh, in the on their shelves and things like that that it could really highlight those as well. Good, Bill. Yeah, and one of the things I think that's key is if you're going to put lights visibly in the frame, you need either some way to dim them without creating digital noise. And when I say that, you can get into flickering. You can also get into RF. Uh, particularly, most of the lights, the inexpensive ones, use a pulse code modulation thing where they turn the light on and off incredibly quickly to dim it. And depending on the frame rate capture of your camera, that can look horrible. So you do want to stick with lights that are dimmable successfully so that you can get your background low enough. Uh, the other thing that what I do here is I tend to use neutral density chair. I leave the lights on 100% so I don't dim them at all. And then I use ND filters to bring them down into the range that I want to see so that everything in the background is not distracting. Um, Although with that green banker's lamp next to me just has a little rheostat on it, and that's using an actual uh, uh, incandescent tube, so that's easy to dim successfully. But if that was an LED source or some kind of a modern source, I'd probably not be able to do that. There you go, Jeff. Those other lights that you just mentioned, and you've mentioned them before, are very cool. Of course, if you're putting them in the lamps at a hotel, you have to remember not to leave them there <laughs> and take them. <laughs> They're but, expensive to leave in the hotel. But, but what... What I'm wondering, you know, primarily with with any of this, having those lights back there is then I've got to imagine there's some considerations either for what features or capability a camera has to have and or if that changes how you're lighting, again, the the person so that, again, the, the lights uh, aren't being washed, everything isn't being washed out by the lighting behind them. Yeah. And I mean, you have to keep, keep all, and, and a lot of it just takes time to tune them. And that's the advantage of having some of these lights that are controllable by the phone means you're sitting there looking through your camera and just moving things around. Like here's the, here's what I was talking about there. This is a little earlier. I was still evolving in this process because you can see that I was using instead of, I now have that little stand, but I was using the uh, ice, the little ice chest to put the, that comes with the hotel room to put my laptop on. You can see the Pavo tubes here. Those are just set at a standard 56, I believe. Um, maybe, maybe, 30, maybe 32. These are these stands, these kind of all-purpose stands that I use everywhere, um, you know, for that. But here's this is where I replaced the um, replaced the lamps. <laughs> so so the, the, that's what you can see. And then you can see I'm adding a little bit more with this another Pavo tube and another Pavo tube. So there's some lighting coming up from the Pavo tubes here. These are my two my two sorry keys. And then you have um, then I replaced the lights there and. It, it produced, I think that was on a, you know, on one of, one of our shows here, and it 
seem to produce a pretty good pretty good um, look. I, I like cool lights behind me. Um, I, I, you'll find that generally I use cool lighting as well as um, uh, neutral or cool colors that I wear, and that's because it makes skin tones look better. Um, so those are the, the that's the reason I, I go down that path. Go ahead, Bill. What's the model number on that laptop stand, Alex? <laughs> Ice, ice, thing. <laughs> ice one. yeah, like ice thing. You know, like it's it's the it comes with the room. So anyway, yeah, go ahead, Bill. I was just going to mention for Jeff, since you're in a voice booth kind of space, I had to light me here on office hours. That my first couple of months in that. So what worked for me was a large ring light that I put up in the corner, kind of pointed down at me. The camera's in the center of it, so I got 360 degree facial lighting out of that. But even dimmed as much as possible, it was too bright and it was shutting the iris of the camera down so that the rest of the booth around me, even with the lights that I ended up using, ended up being too dark. So I actually had to cut a piece of two-stop ND from a 22 by 28 foot uh, inch seat in a circle and put that inside and put another diffusion thing on top of it to get that light down enough so that I could balance it with the colored lights in the the Thing, and that worked. So my face got a lot of neutral colored lights and it kept all the spill off of me. But it was that combination of having to work the light. And I think that it, it's one of the big arguments for being on the panel often uh, for me is that um, I, I don't need any arguments. I really just enjoy being on the panel with everybody every morning. But but one of the big arguments to be on the panel is that you get to practice this all the time. So you're practicing, practicing, practicing. And what you're seeing is us constantly evolving and you get a, a place, a playground where you're playing, where you're working out with a lot of people that are pretty good at it. <laughs> you know? and so, so you get to see yourself in comparison, not with the utter horror that is almost everybody else's Zoom connections. It's, it's hard for you to get better when everyone around you, you know, isn't, isn't doing, isn't putting any effort into it. And so it's easier to get, you know, for me, because of the panel, I'm, I'm constantly looking at things that I like about what other people are doing and going, oh, I really, you know, I really like that or I really like this. And and I keep on moving those things around because other people are outdoing me somewhere. And, you know, I put it in there and I don't I don't necessarily need to fix it that at that moment. But, you know, like I, I had mics that, that are good, um, but I needed them for other things and I need to do other. And I saw that, you know, Courtney, you know, had a. Uh, a really good mic and I moved to, and we tested it against a much more expensive mic and it was, it was great. Um, and so I'm still using the Stellar X2. Um, and there's so many things here that I get from the other panelists. You know, I moved to the Sony because other people are using so um, Greg Gibson. It's all Greg Gibson's fault. Uh, watching Greg and then Greg pops on and you're like, man, does that look good? Like, it's just, you know, you're just, you're just like, he looks so good. And I was just like, I don't know if I can keep on doing it if I can't keep up with Greg. So, you know, a lot of these things come from us, uh, you know, playing a really, hard game, uh, you know, on the panel every day uh, and the practice of it, of just knowing how it all works and you know, being able to know how everything, everything's second nature. It makes you look uh, so much better in a meeting. <laughs> like, I just, you know, like you just play a lot harder. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. And I did uh, find uh, Alex's laptop stand. It's a Hepco Elmar uh, R2000 <laughs> sand and they're $57 for 36 of them. So you know, the funny thing is the stand that I, that I, that I, the, it's a, uh, a broken, uh, broken. I don't know why, but B R O C O O N uh, makes the the and it's less expensive than what you just showed, and it's actually built for the laptop. All right, next question. That's an industrial motel style uh, 
ice bucket. That's very impressive. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Where can you save money in your studio by spending more time doing it yourself? Go, Jeffrey. That's actually getting harder and harder to do nowadays. I mean, I remember when we first put together studios and, and you didn't have Amazon, you didn't have these third-party companies with lights and, and microphones and, and that you could get for under $100. But there's still some things that I do. I, I'm going to show you a couple quick things here. Uh, this was uh, this is the other side. Sorry about the lighting on this because the other light just basically washed this out. I had to turn that off. So this is my Vizio that, and the camera that I that I showed you from earlier. Uh, and instead of putting anything on tables, creating tables for uh, that, I actually found, uh, went to a garage sale and found one of these old, what are they, the, uh, the old stands that you would use for your AV cart. They're, well, AV cart stands, that, that's what it is. And I fashioned it to put a VESA mount right on there so that the monitor's on here. Because the one thing about my studio is my studio, everything in my studio is on wheels. And that's by design. So if I need to move the table out to move something else in, I can do that. It's something I saw when we went to uh, to the Today Show. We saw how they moved everything around uh, uh, in their design. It was, it, that's what I wanted to do with my studio. The other thing is, uh, I love these uh, these little panels. These are actually insulation panels, and I use them. You you couldn't see it behind that TV, so that's why I showed you. I'm showing you this one. So this insulation panel on one side it's blue, on the other side it's kind of reflective, and I've had these above my head at times. And if you point the light right onto those panels, it'll actually create a reflection so you don't have to have a lot of, uh, of lighting around. And then, of course, the simple things like, for instance, uh, I think this is a 200-watt CFL. You just have to watch out what type of CFLs you get because, uh, first of all, they take a little time to warm up. And then second of all, they could cause a flicker. So you put them behind a softbox so you can get some, some good lighting. So... And then, of course, you get the you go down to the hardware store. You can get uh, the clamp lights to put on overhead. I used to have those in my studio all over, and then I switched to panels when they became less expensive. Yeah, and I, I've used some really big CFLs. I've, I've mostly moved to LEDs just because the CFLs have have a big green spike in them that you know, from a color perspective, that that was always problematic uh, in, for what we were doing. The big thing for me is the infrastructure that sits around it. So mostly electronics themselves is not something that I'll necessarily update. But if you go back to this, what, what I had here, um, this maker pipe has um, been incredible. This is just EMT rail. Um, I have as much as you possibly should safely put on EMT um, rail. So um, so I, I, until I go up to a higher, like I'm going to probably rebuild the grid that I have up, up above with one inch EMT because right now I'm using three quarter and it bows a little bit because I have so much stuff that's that's going across it. So I'm going to probably update that. Um, but but being able to build these big soft boxes and being able to rig these all of this stuff up has been super useful. I'm going to end up building a a new table. I'm just trying to figure out what I want. So the nice thing is, is I kind of cobble things together iter iteratively. I figure out kind of where I like things, and then I'm going to try to build something that that represents that. Um, you know, kind of as we move forward. So, but I think that it's the infrastructure around the electronics that really you can save a lot of money on by doing yourself. And it's fun. My son and I put most of the stuff up, um, you know, so he's uh, he's now 
taller than me, so he's, I've decided he's useful. So I, I, I hire him to, to, uh, to work with me. I do hire him and uh, pay him a solid wage to, to, to help me um, figure this stuff out. Then all you need is one of these. This is, a little, this is what you cut the EMT with. You think that you need a, a, a more motorized version of it, but this makes a lot less mess and it's easier to listen to radio. Next question. Bart Gaffney and Economowak, how often in your broadcast are you B-rolling footage and what are you using in your 10K studio? Go ahead, Jeffrey. It, for me, it depends on what I'm doing. If I'm doing a live stream, uh, that's why I have the multi-cam set up so I can switch between the uh, between this camera and then, uh, and then this camera and then back to my main camera. Uh, and so, but for doing any type of B-roll, uh, it, uh, yeah, I'll definitely, uh, get out, uh, something like I have a couple Pivos, which, uh, if you don't know what those are, those are little devices you can actually put a camera on and with an app, you can do AI ability, but they've also had, they also have a turntable mode. So if you set them and you create a little platform for them so they're really not seen, then you can start using them to spin around, uh, products and then, uh, and then put them in white boxes or, or, or anything like that to really get a good shot of the device. Uh, for doing anything like when I go to CES and things like that, doing B-roll is just basically pulling out. It used to be have using my camera, but now it's taking my phone and pulling it out and just running it across the, an item and then bringing it in. And then, of course, uh, they're recorded in the studio. Now I'm working on ISO. Um, in, if I'm not doing it live, I'm working on recording ISOs so I can bring in that as B-roll if I need to. Good, Bill. I read this as generating essentially play out that what he was looking for was in this, the case of a live show, rolling in footage from something. And uh, there's a lot of way to do it. We talk about the play out be a lot, uh, anything that connects something. I tend to use Keynote on an iPad Pro sitting next to me, uh, embed the video in that as an H.264, and then just connect that into my ATEM switcher via an HDMI port. And that's all I need to run the video on my iPad and have it go out over the broadcast. Go ahead, Cordy. Yeah, but, uh, I'm always throwing in graphics here, which is just off a secondary screen off of the Dell. But I also have one of these uh, uh, Melees plugged into uh, the uh, switcher, video switcher into the ATEM, so I can cut to that. And I have my own video player here that uh, I can make full screen and control it off camera from a separate keyboard. So um, I can roll video in that way as well. I do it some, similar to Courtney. I have a um, I have a, another Mac Mini that I is dedicated just a video playback, and so I'm I'm typically it, it, I use a couple different things, whether it's QLab or Keynote. Usually Keynote if I'm showing Keynotes. I don't play a lot of video in Keynote because I think that it drops frames, and I find that the play system is really in, inside a Keynote. If I just want to play a video, it's fine, but if I want to scrub back and forth or do anything that's complicated inside of Keynote, it's just um, truly painful. And so, so I, uh, so I don't, I don't use it that way um, very often. Go ahead, Jeff. It's a question really for Bill and maybe Alex, what you're talking about also, but if you're playing a video, why do you need to have it in keynote versus just play the video natively on the iPad? Well, there, just, has, there yeah, has to be something feed him, feeding my ATEM switcher, or I can't switch to it when I need it. I want to be in regular camera, and then I want to go to the video. So the question is, without doing a screen share, how am I going to instantly cue 
the video playback device, whatever it is, to get it into yeah. the stream. And the problem is, is that like, for instance, QuickTime, uh, if you want to go full screen with QuickTime, as soon as you say full screen, it turns off all your other screens. So unless you have a dedicated computer, which I do, like it is super annoying. Like the full screen should be one screen, not all of the screens. It is like, I don't understand that I love Apple, but there's sometimes when you're just like, what were you thinking? Like, you know, like, why would I, why would I ever want that? Anyway, so, um, so anyway, quick with Keynote very quickly inside of, um, they made a present to window, which you can then do full screen. You can tag it and it'll go full screen without taking over everything else. And that makes it a lot easier to, to do those things. But so does like something like QLab, um, where it just says, go out to this output, which is, is nice as well. Next question. Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. What piece of gear would you have the greatest would have the greatest impact if it were to fail, and how would you work around or fix the issue? Good, Jeff. I would say the audio chain as a whole is is probably uh, the most important because if your video goes out, I mean, you're dark. That's not great, but at least you can say. Oh my gosh, something happened with my camera. The cat kicked over the camera, whatever. Uh, vice versa, if your camera, you know, if they see you, don't hear you, you're just waving and doing sign language. So I would say this audio chain. And then, you know, I would almost say it's better to maybe identify the few things that aren't critical because everything else, you're, as the saying goes, your chain is only as strong as your weakest link. If you can have the best stuff and if one cable fails, everything that's running through it fails. So redundancy is the key, uh, either having just a cheap camera or a cheap mic that you can quickly switch to. Um, at cables, of course, you should always have any important cable uh, on hand, a, a duplicate of it, because cables just go bad. So th that's the key, I think. Yeah, Jeffrey, real quick. Duplicates of power cables that you don't, that aren't normal. Uh, I'm going to add to that. But for me, it's internet because a lot of the stuff I'm running is NDI. Uh, and of course, I do a lot of live streams. Uh, that's why I have two internet uh, internets coming into the house. So if one fails, then I, ha I can move over. So I'm really desperately waiting for that fiber connection to get turned on. Good, Courtney. Yeah, the Dell will occasionally crash. That's why I have the Melee, which is running into the to the switcher as well. I can flip over to it if I need to. And also I have a UPS on all of my, not only the Dell, but the uh, uh, cable modem and the router and the switch are all on UPS. So if uh, I, there's a power failure or a power glitch, it doesn't take everything down. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, would the Blue Sona be a solid mic in the same class as the Heil PR40? And he's got a link to it. Haven't used it yet. I don't think any of us have it. Um, it it's a Pretty pricey for the type of phone microphone that it is. I think that it would probably, uh, I probably wouldn't replace the PR40 with that one specifically. At that price point, I'd start looking really closely at the SMB7. Uh, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. What are some additional hidden costs you can incur after you've budgeted for the $10,000 studio? Go ahead, John. Sorry about that. Somebody's texting me. So this is a great question. And when I built my Studio C over here, at least 50% of this cost, I've got all the same gear that's been enumerated multiple times, but all of the stands uh, and all of the all of the uh, clamps, super clamps, all that stuff added up more, way, way more than I ever thought. Um, and the desk, my desk is expensive as well. So the, the furniture and all the mounting and all the cables is way more than you, you think it's going to be. Go, Jeffrey. 
Yeah, if you're mix and matching, then uh, and then all of a sudden uh, you might find a situation where one camera is working, not working as well as the other camera, or not working at all with the other camera or the other microphone or whatnot, and then you have to go in. So uh, do a little bit of research as to what you're putting together and make sure that it's all going to work in harmony. Good. Uh, yeah, next question. Uh, John Snyder's up next, Reno, Nevada. If you were building toward the $10,000 studio and had to make a budgetary choice, would you start with a lesser audio interface or camera? Good, Chris. I, I think I'd start with the lesser audio interface just because I think with the audio, you can build you can build pieces, whereas video camera, you buy the video camera and that's the video chain. And where the audio chain, there's, there can be more pieces in that. So you could buy the video camera big up front and then piece the audio together. Yeah, I'd probably get an MV7 if I got, if I'm, that's what we send out and it sounds relatively good for, for most of what we do. I think the big problem for me is that if I don't have a, um, if I don't have the noise assist on a mix pre, I just don't care anymore. Like I, I, I just, I, I will admit it is, it makes such a big difference in my space and in my mobile spaces that without, without the noise assist, I, I, I just, uh, it can just be a USB mic. I mean, so that's from my perspective. Um, next question. John Fultz, back from Silence Grove. Uh, for Chris Sabato, what computer specs do you use for your vMix app? Go ahead, Chris. Uh, this computer is an i7 with 32 gigs of RAM and a Quadro P2200. Um, I'm also specking out a new uh, broadcast vMix PC, um, and I asked a question about it in Discord. So if you're interested, hop into the Discord vMix, and we're talking about it. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael wonders if you could fit basic audio networking into a $10,000 budget. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, absolutely. Dante, I mean, you get two two nodes of Dante, that's about $200 right there. But if you want to really kind of push that envelope, try uh, try using NDI for your audio. And that's absolutely free if, you, if you're uh, running it off of different machines uh, into, uh, from one direction to the other. So, And that's what I've been playing with. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach. Thoughts on deciding between doing a good virtual background in a fixed location studio versus dealing with the visual design and acoustics of a real background. Go, Jeff. It was, again, watching the the Zoom AI Summit um, that made me think of this. They, like many, um, obviously ask every guest to use the same virtual background for consistency. And it was clear that probably all the guests and and some of the the Zoom staff, and it, and it was great, but what I did notice is that they very obviously were not green screening. They were, you know, doing the virtual background, you know, in, in front of a barn or something, because you saw the telltale um, and what I consider distracting, you know, flares around the ears and all the stuff that comes with it. So it, it makes me wonder if you do it right, as, as good as it could be with a green screen, can you get a pretty good effect now going through, well, doing whatever you're doing, going through Zoom? Or should people really focus on, if they're building a studio from scratch, really try and focus on building out a real background? Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, if you go back and look at the episode with, that uh, on wood turning with Cindy Dresner, it, it was an amazing how she's done a green screen background with a wood lathe in the foreground, and she's put a still of her the rest of her shop behind her, and it looks perfectly real, and her and her key, although it's being done, I think, in vMix, uh, looks perfectly good and believable because she took the background photo from the same position as her webcam camera, 
and inserts it in there behind her. And it gives her the flexibility of putting herself cut out in the corner when she's demonstrating her wood turning. So take a look at that and you'll see a, a great representation of how to do a, a virtual studio that looks perfectly real and within the uh, context of where, where she is. Good, Bill. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Cindy Drozda, I think it was on Monday, wasn't it? And, and it was just a fabulous use of chroma keying perfectly. So it's possible. Took a lot of doing for her to get it there, but yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, it's, um, uh, it, it, there's also a level of good enough, you know, I mean, as the hard part that I have is that I'm a, compo- that I, I was a compositor for film. And so I see a lot. And so it, it, it's really, it's, I find it harder to do green screen. One thing that I'm, that I'm experimenting with right now that I may try on the road actually is the, um, there's a company called Sub2R. So it's sub2r.com. And they have a self-lit green screen um, that that can go behind you, and so I'm going to take a look at that. You may, uh, I may appear <laughs> that way next week at some point to see if see how that see how it how it works. Um, but it has lighting in, interior to it, so you don't have to light it from the outside. It gives you a nice pure green screen, um, and uh, so we're going to kind of pl- take a look at that. And and um, they saw the show. I think we were talking about green screen at some point and sent me one to test. So we're going to take a look at it and and see how it how how well it works. Um, so, and, and I've done green screen in the past, um, for this show and I got it going pretty well. Um, the main thing that, that was there was that I, uh, I shot it with the same, the background with like Cindy, same camera, same position. Now I, I shot my living room instead of here because there was nothing to shoot here. And what I did then, uh, is I, um, I keyed it, but I took the camera that was here and I picked it up literally on the tripod set it down where I wanted, framed it, but by only moving the tripod. So my camera was exactly in the same angle and position that it was in here. And then when I turned it on, it looks natural. So one thing people forget about virtual backgrounds is that you have to match the focal length. You have to match the vanishing points. You have to match the, 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 you know, the height and, and, and everything else. That really sells that background and has it not feel weird. Um, and so, uh, so if you're going to do it, you got to do that. And then you want to have a really good green screen and then you want to try to get almost every hair. As soon as it's a little off, people just start looking at it. They can't stop. It's, it's actually worse than having something there. And so, so I'm not a big, I mean, I will say that I did that for a while and I just found that doing the green screen, if it went wrong or if anything went sideways, it really took a lot, took the viewer out of it. And I decided to go to a gray screen that I could just pop up behind me, um, rather than worrying about what that was. So, um, so anyway, so I kind of moved away from it because of that, um, because I'm driving down to LA next week, I'm gonna take both the green screen and a gray screen with me. <laughs> so we'll play with both of them, um, in the show while I'm on the road. Um, but, but I think that, um, I think you have to watch it. I will never use a gray sc- a green screen. I use a, the auto removal inside of a video application. So like zoom or teams or whatever because i you know i have i have some dignity so um so anyway so i you know like you know my 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 self-worth is high enough that i won't degrade myself by putting a virtual background inside of a inside of a video system maybe someday it'll get good enough that i would be willing to to um slosh through the mud but i haven't seen mud that i'm willing to stick my foot into yet and and that's what it is it's just mud you know, and it is an embarrassment that Zoom does that. You know, like it is like they should be embarrassed that they do it. I'm a big fan of Zoom. It 
It is damaging. The reason it makes me frustrated is it damages our entire industry and what Zoom's trying to do by doing that because it looks horrible. And people say, well, I don't want to do a virtual event. I want to go to a physical event. Why do they want to do that? Because everyone looks so bad. (laughs) Everybody looks so bad and they sound so bad. And when Zoom propagates that, they are destroying their own market. Like what? Whoever thinks that that's a good idea is crazy. Like, I'm sure they're really smart in some places, but nuts. It is the nuttiest thing that I've ever seen is that they force people to do something that actually degrades the value of their own platform. That's all I got to say. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's so frustrating when I watch these, these conferences and, and it's, it, it looks horrible. And I'm like, you are damaging my, my business. My business is getting damaged by what Zoom is doing. And I'm doing it on top of Zoom's platform and you're hurting me. Like, you know, like, you know, personally, you're costing me money by making it look so bad, you know, and it's just, it's so frustrating. It is so frustrating to watch them um, just burn up their own market for no reason. You know, anyway, it's just, I get that there's a thought process that we should make it, make it available to everyone and everything else, but let's like, let's bring up the level, the, the level of the conversation so that, so that, that online events are actually competitive, you know, and, and they're actually worth watching. And if you are putting a virtual background behind your speakers, you are, I can't even say it. I can't say, it starts with a P, but you're doing that on them. I guess there it is. I said it on them, you know, and on your show and you're ruining it. (laughs) I'm just just letting you know. Like, and and if you do a really good green screen and you have a really great setup and you make it, do all the things I talked about, you can get away with it. But if you're using the built-in tools for any of these things, you are ruining your event and you're damaging our entire market and you should stop. Good, Courtney. And I think um, if I just could, I think there's a time and place for that feature. And the feature, by the way, is amazing. What it is able to do without a green screen is amazing. So for a personal call, if I'm, you know, who knows where, and I just want to answer, you know, real quick, get on. Uh, it's great for that. But but yes, the fact that for an event and what's worse is that some of those folks may have had good sets, but they clearly must have insisted for consistency. I won't do it. Want everyone to use this uh, virtual background. People hand me those hand me those backgrounds, and what I do is I extract the logos out of the backgrounds because that's what they really want, and I key them over top of my thing. I put like a little thing down the side, and they're like, "Oh, that looks a lot better. <laughs> that actually looks really nice," you know. And I'm like, I'm, "I won't use it. Like, I just won't. I won't do it. If I thought that I would need a virtual background, I just don't turn my camera on." Like I, I, you know, if, if I'm going to stoop down that low, I'm, I'm just, just going to go audio, audio. And I do that a lot. Like, but you can always tell when I'm not in this studio is that I'm on audio. Like I will almost never turn my camera on if I'm not set up. Um, next, uh, Courtney, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, I I was watching Twit the other day uh, and somebody was coming on with a virtual background using this uh, reflect media retro Mm -hmm. reflective screen with this green, uh, green light that goes around the lens. And the problem with that is, uh, you know, it does a a pretty good green screen, but you're throwing green light onto your face unless you have a lot of white light to wash it out. It's a problem. And the other problem is they had a high LPR 40 in the foreground, which has that sandblasted uh, aluminum finish and it turned green, but it wouldn't key out. So it just looked really strange. I, I I used to own one of those and I just found that there was, there's all occlusion problems or another thing. If you get too close, you get the penumbra starts to cut through. And, and so I, I, I don't, I don't approve. I don't, I, we stopped using it. We, we tried it for like two or three projects and moved back to regular green. We're going to go just a little bit over to finish this. I know I went off a little bit. I apologize for that, but we'll, we'll just try to cut through these real quick. Next question. 
Joe Floyd, Gainesville. Alex, have you considered buying a Klein Reamer bit for the EMT? It saves a lot of time and finger cuts from freshly cut EMT. So on this guy here, this is what that does. And so it's built into the into this. Um, so I cut it. It's smooth on the outside, by the way, the nature of the blade. And then you take this little guy and you turn it over and you spin it. And it gets rid of, uh, it, it deburs the, that area really effectively. And I haven't had a problem with it. Um, as soon as I realized what this was, I didn't know what it was for a long time. And, and then when I knew, then I did better. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hausoy, Tromso, Norway. Most office hours use physical backgrounds, calming down the image by depth of field and not using a screen. Would using a big screen TV with Resolume and nice images or graphics destroy the calmness and take away focus from the speaker? Go ahead, Jeffrey. Real quick. I don't think so. I don't think so, but I think if you'd have, you have to really pick and choose what you do. I know uh, a few YouTubers that have uh, monitors that they're using mm -hmm. in their productions behind them, not only for uh, for showing different scenes, but also I've, I've been doing some research on how people are turning monitors into windows so they mm -hmm. can uh, so they mm -hmm. can have a really nice uh, really nice studio with a window that they can control. Yep. I go ahead, Courtney. You can do it. Just crank the brightness down so it's not over, not uh, brighter than a normal down background, and use static images only on it that don't change. And it, it works great. I mean, we uh, most almost every insert studio that we work in has it. Uh, bad, it, just like bad virtual backgrounds. If they use bad ones, like this weekend, George, <laughs> George Stephanopoulos was really bad backgrounds. If you use bad backgrounds, it's not great. Um, but if you use good ones, um, it's it's great. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand says, from a DR, and I think this is digital recorder and or backup perspective, what would you spend your money on? Uh, you know, you, you're looking for something that's going to be able to record um, your, your video. I still really like Hyperdex because they're, you know, they're just small and I push a button and then and they record it. Um, but I also have, uh, I have, I have, because I've been around for a while, I have these little pixels that I have, I have a couple of these laying around. So I still use these a lot for 1080p work um, because I have them, but I wouldn't, can't buy them anymore. So, but they're, they're still great. Um, that's it. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for all the great questions uh, from our producers that uh, kept this conversation going. There's no show without you. <laughs> if you stop asking questions or you don't ask enough questions, it's so great when we come in and there's a bunch of questions at the, at the top of the hour and those questions keep rolling in so that we don't have to worry about it. If you ever see us kind of going off the rails um, talking most of the time, it's because there's not a lot of questions. And so we're just kind of like filling time. So it's really great when the producers are asking lots of questions, especially before the show. So we have time to look at them and it makes us sound smarter because we had a little time to think about it. So, um, so go ahead and keep throwing those in. Now, thanks to the panelists. Can't do this without you. Of course, a uh, great, great second hour here. Um, and a lot of people had great input and also a great first hour. Uh, uh, we can't, you know, again, we've done it with less people and it's, it's harder. <laughs> it's not as good a show. So we really appreciate your contribution. And of course, we appreciate the incredible team, the management team, the, the development team and the folks that are building code and the live team that is, of course, making this all happen every single day, seven days a week. We really appreciate your contribution. We traveled uh, 83,000 miles, 133,000 kilometers, um, and that is 658 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. That was a merry message. <laughs> I hate virtual background. We were left on
unsure if you're appealing, appealing did, of that did, did you, you wonder how I felt? I, it just, I, I wanted to make sure because I know that you guys think that I'm like kind of on the fence. I feel yeah, yeah. I, I've been wondering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have a little more clarity now. <laughs> I I literally open up Zoom events and I look. I go, oh, that'd be a great subject, and I open it. And I'm like, I'm not watching this. I'm not watching. I'm it really was around. distracting. It's so right. horrible. It's so horrible. Should I turn off? I, yeah, I just could listen, just close my eyes and try to not remember what I saw. All right, here we go. I think we also probably have some.